Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What's up, everybody? Lauren Ash here. Just wanted to give you a quick heads up that in this episode of the show, there is going to be some references to self-harm. So we wanted to give you a quick trigger warning up front, but we're not going to dwell on it. Still wanted to give you the heads up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. It's your bitch, Christy Oxborough, and with me, as always, the love of my life, the lady to my gaga, Lauren Ash. How you doing? I'm doing great. You know, honestly, can't complain. Uh, it's been rainy in LA, which to many would say that makes you happy, and when it's sunny all the time, the break is nice. The break yeah. is nice. So that's, that's, uh... That's a bonus. I've I also I don't know, my energy is a little all over the place. I uh sure. I had a very busy week and so I I I pulled a I pulled a long a long research day yesterday and I today I'm feeling mm-hmm. um uh, maybe the best adjective would be unhinged. Oh, so I thought we go. were going to go with jagged. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, both work. Yeah, both work. Yeah. I get it. I am severely underslept. Sure. And so I'm, I think my quote to you earlier was, I'm just coasting on fumes at this point because I don't know anymore. Yeah. I don't know. Um, and sleep would have been fine if Cheddar, my cat, not even my cat today because I'm angry at her. Yeah. My son's cat, Cheddar, mm. is a brat. And I, I just can't with the attitude. Yeah. I can't. They push. Yeah. They push. Yeah, they do. I almost pushed her out the door at 5.30 this morning because I'd had it. I'd had it. And then to come out to your kitchen 
when you're irritated and you're very tired and this cat is driving you crazy and find out that they got on the counter, stole a roll of paper towel and shredded it throughout your kitchen. It's just, it's like I can see months from now my Christmas tree everywhere, you know? Yeah. Yep. So that I'm like, ah, uh, do I need to not put it up this year? That feels awful. So I don't, I don't know if I can. Ad- oh, <laughs> I don't know if that's what your spirit needs. What? Oh, oh, yeah. My jagged uh, spirit <laughs> needs a Christmas tree. So, yeah, yeah, uh, that cat might live in the basement the backyard somebody else's home i don't know (laughs) it's it's just been a multiple days of just cats testing me and when you're like oh christy you have two cats so surely the other cat is being nice and to that i say dear listeners i spent the majority of monday cleaning cat pee and using a blacklight flashlight in my basement to find all the cat pee spots that yeah that that you're not sure of and yeah. great news is i spend a lot of money on a cleaner all you smell once you hit the landing to go downstairs is that cleaner you smell nothing else it's a joy <laughs> so i don't know hey. if it's worked but for that that means for now the one that keeps peeing everywhere is the one that's in my good books <laughs> Because Listen. right now, it I'm not saying it's it's forever fixed. It's good enough. Yes, that's where we're at. Listen, and that's that's how you gotta you gotta pick your battles. You gotta yes. pick your battles. Yeah. Um. Uh. And this this whole uh, long winded me being underslept leads to it's it's been a long weekend. <laughs> it's, yeah. I mean, we had the we had the brunch. In costume and on over on Patreon, yeah, uh, patreon.com slash true crime and cocktails, yeah. Uh, and then the next day, we recorded a Halloween episode for Patreon in other costumes, yeah. Uh, that costume broke me mentally and yeah. caused a full breakdown in my car, yeah. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. so I was, I was already jagged, <laughs> and then we come into this, but then prior to that. And this is going to lead to a shout out. Uh, Because for once, I'm name dropping. Please do. Makes me feel better. Is a nice, a nice change up, we'll say. Uh, Because I, I never do. Uh, Before we got into the brunch, I was already slightly hungover and underslept. Because my husband and I attended a concert. Yeah. We have not attended one in years and uh the lovely gentleman of the band Took uh invited me to the show and so i'm like well i gotta take a date i guess i asked my number one and she was stuck in la (laughs) (laughs) so then i was like oh all right well i guess we'll see how number two feels and uh he wanted to go so we got, we, I mean, to, to come in immediately and have them be like, oh, are you on a list? And I'm like, oh, um, I, I, I believe I'm on, I'm, I'm here, um, for, for Took 
and they're like, okay, your name? Great. Okay. Yeah. Over there. Like it was, it was, I was taking it so much more seriously and freaking out. These people at the ticket thing were like, this, this happens for people. And I'm like, not for me, not for me. Uh, She's getting a taste of that life, everybody. She's getting a taste of that life. She is. Uh, We, we sat at the table. We watched a couple of bands and then uh, lead singer, one dear Mr. Todd Kearns. Friend of the podcast, Todd Kearns. Yeah, uh, contacted me and was like, hey, COVID things are happening, so we're not going to be able to hang out after the show. And my heart went, oh, my God, thank God. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> because as some of our especially OG listeners may recall, uh, I, I, I can't. I can't. <laughs> I can't think about him and I sharing a space. Uh, so I was well, like, yes. oh. Todd I Kearns, mean, of course, is the lead singer of our shared favorite band of all time, The Age of Electric. He yes. also is a lead singer in Took. Uh, he plays bass yeah. with Slash as well. And we we did a live with Took, which I think you can yeah. obviously still find over on YouTube, which is such a joy. And Todd surprised us by having two of the other members of Age of Electric come on to that live and our yeah. reaction was screaming i mean it's it's good for the soul i'll say that yeah. so so check that out over on youtube over there uh but yeah for context like this is it like this is <laughs> this is the pinnacle for the both of us and so yeah. i of course have have met todd prior to you uh, yes. and his lovely lovely wife shout out monique kearns um and so I, so now I feel like I, I'm like, it's old hat for me. And I'm like, you'll be fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Acting yep. like I wasn't one of the yahoos screaming, you know, 20 minutes ago. Uh, yeah. But anyway, that's the backstory is, is that now it's time with all of this extra lead up that's been happening. Yeah. And he's saying, hey, come to the show. Put you on a list. Yeah. And I was like, that's cool. We won't probably see each other. And he's like, Come on. I can't, I probably won't be able to see you after. So I'm like, it's fine. I'm like, you know what? No worries. I totally get it. This, uh, uh, thank you so much for inviting me. This is going to be great. I'm excited. And the response I got was, oh, I'm seeking you out before the show. And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> like my brain was not well. Uh, it turns out when my brain is unwell, white rum is the way I go. So I was like, my husband was like, I, uh, are you doing okay? And I was like, I don't know. He's like, should we get drinks? And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll wait here. <laughs> and so, but of course it was like, you had to go out to a different area to get the ticket. And then you had to go to another area to get the drink. So it was a, a lot, but, um, he did it so that I could attempt to calm down. And then I, I got word that they were in the building and to come upstairs. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. And the answer was just sneak backstage <laughs> and, and get yourself upstairs. And we did uh, with the help of a gentleman who was sitting at the table with us who was like, go, go, <laughs> I'll watch out for anyone. I was like, great. Uh, and then we got upstairs and I, I met Todd Kearns face to face and uh, couldn't feel my legs for the majority of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, it was such a blur. I got to meet uh, the other members of Took who we did, we Zoomed with them. Exactly, on the live that I'm, I'm referencing. Yeah. yeah, and they they were so lovely. 
uh, Todd was like, you remember Christy from True Crime and Cocktails? And they were like, oh, my God, it's so amazing that you're here. So that Brian Laundry though, like <laughs> within half a They're second. They're just into it. Just yeah, into it. They were like, so. And I was like, oh, I have thoughts. And they were like, really? And so we start talking about Brian Laundry because what else do you do? Of course. Um, and they put on a fantastic show. We were like, for the first two bands, we were sitting at the table like some old farts. And when they were coming out, I was like, we can't do that. So after uh, getting Lauren and I matching toque shirts, because it's what you do. It's what we do. Um, I was like, okay, so I guess we're just going to stand like center stage, second row, crammed in with all these people. You had to show proof of vaccination to get in. You had to wear a mask when you were standing on the dance floor, that kind of thing. So it was safe. Uh, as safe as we can be currently, I guess. Yeah, of uh, but uh, the second they came out, just my God, phenomenal! It was insane. The they came back and did an encore of one of my favorite Age of Electric songs, and I just like all they said was, "We're going to go back to 1989," and I turned to my husband and, and screamed, "Aphrodisiac smile!" I'm dying. Uh, so to the very drunk woman who requested that on a napkin, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank Mid you. show Thank you. But just a tip. Don't hand it to them while they're playing. They chat. Give it a beat. They do Give a, a beat. chat between each song. Wait for that moment. Flag him down. Hand it to him. Sure. While he's playing, his hands are full. Give There's, they've got seconds. other things they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. But just that gracious man took it read it and made this face of like oh yeah maybe and so i'm like well i want to know what it says and then he told everybody what it says now in the times that we've seen them yes have we seen them play that song live in vancouver that's right that's right i was like i couldn't remember if they played it in vancouver or not and i knew yeah. you'd know part of me wonders if they did play it in regina because i know it's a hit in regina we like, gotta pull up that set list. We have this. Yeah. You have the set list somewhere, like the physical I one. Do. Didn't you took <laughs> I do. I did. <laughs> and trust me, I would have taken uh, a toque set list, but it turns out they just went off the top of their heads as they went, which we could not uh, have loved more. But uh, to this, I all say, what amazing experience! This is the the perk of my job. I can't even tell you. And they were just so lovely to me. We took photos. I almost died. I think I came out of my own body once <laughs> just to yes. witness what was happening. Uh, but I to uh, the gentlemen of Took, I just want to say to Todd and Shane and Fitzy and Corey, thank you for having us. Fantastic show. Uh, and I, there will be so many more Took shows in my future because those guys know how to put on a goddamn show. If I may use a term coined by a movie starring another Canadian, Mr. Mike Myers as Wayne Campbell, they wail. <laughs> Thank you for that. Of You're welcome. All the, of all the quotes... I didn't know where we'd go with that, but yeah. Um, yeah, I liked it. Now, to to prep myself for that experience, I was on white rum. 
I'm not today. But my oh. question then to you is, what you drinking over there? I'm doing something unprecedented. Now, I have a, my tumbler of water uh, because, as people know, when I've, when I've done the research and I'm driving the train, I can't drink too much or I get slurry fast. Sure. Uh, but what I've discovered is a low-calorie Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc. Now, oh. this is, is a, it, it, the, the, here's the thing about the low-calorie. Uh, not bad. Flavor-wise, not bad. Uh, and it, and uh, the, the alcohol content is lower. That's how they get the calories down. Sure. And so what's nice is that I can have a, I can have a couple glasses and then I don't feel, I'm getting the taste for it. Yeah. But I, I'm not getting loopy. You know what I mean? So, so I've had, sure. I, but here's the joke is I've already finished a glass. So I'm going to, and I'm not going to have another until the half of the half, the, wow. the first third. We do three, we do three chunks. So that's, that's cute that I'm suggesting I'm only going to do two glasses for the whole episode. Get real. Um, but yeah, I'm only, ha- I'm going to have one per each one. Uh, cause obviously this is a, an episode that's been very important to me. I've, I've set my own bar very high, you know? Yeah. I mean, as you always say, if they've clicked on the episode, we need to believe they know what we're talking about. But, dear people, today we're talking about Blanket Girl number five, Miss Amy Winehouse. That's right. Uh, the, the Blanket Gals, again, uh, we're wearing the merch. I'm wearing the t-shirt. Yeah. Chrissy's wearing the nightshirt. Uh the t-shirts are still available. True crime, uh, true crime, true crew merch dot com. Uh, now I made these because the Marilyn Monroe was the first episode of the show where we started talking about wanting to go back in time in a time machine with warm blankets and just mm-hmm. wrap. I just want to wrap her up and give her a hug and tell her that yep. everything's going to be okay. And then it came up again in the Britney episode, the Anna Nicole Smith episode, and of course the China episode, which is a near and dear one to my heart. It changed me. Yeah. That episode changed me. Of course. Um, and at the end of that episode, I talked about how Amy Winehouse apparently loved China and said, you know, Amy, she's another one I'd like to wrap in a blanket. So when I made the merch, I put Amy's name on there because I was committing to doing an episode about her. And I have. And let me tell you a little something. The the research here is unprecedented. Th- this pile of pages, I'm going to try and talk as fast as I can. I'm going to try and include as much as I can. But it it's a lot of info. A lot of info. So... Oh, I, I think once the people heard it's your bitch, they were like, oh, we're in for a long one tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do have yeah. a brand and the brand is verbose. I get it. <laughs> oh, I mean this in nothing but the positive way. Of course. Plus, if nothing else, it's it's just fun to hear it's your bitch, which that just, I guess, is the thing now. I do I think I, it is the thing. That's your brand now, which I could not love. More. I guess. I do, I do think that the unsolved stuff inherently, I mean, look, we could talk about anything forever, obviously, but the yeah. unsolved stuff has an end. There is an end. When you're talking about somebody where you know how they died, it's a lot, I just feel like it's a lot more info, or, or, and you know the reasoning and everything, like it's a lot more info if it's a famous person. Oh, yeah. It's like never ending. You could go and go and go. And I'll tell you something, this past week, I, I did. I did and did and did, and uh, but I'm excited. I'm jazzed. I'm jazzed. Oh, I mean, they know this is this is what we want. This is what this is what we do, and we could not be more ready. I yeah. know that you have a lot of pages, so you just want me to just jump in. Get and into we'll it. Just, Let's uh, jump in. 
Amy Winehouse is one of the most universally beloved artists of our generation. While she only had two albums in her lifetime, her impact was immense. A true jazz performer with a voice that sounded like it came from another era, Amy's raw lyrics and unique style took the world by storm. Sadly, she passed away at the age of 27 from alcohol poisoning. She was so ill at the time, she had been di- also she had also been diagnosed with emphysema and had been warned by her doctor that her life was at risk if she kept drinking. So how did she get so far gone at such a young age? Was her toxic boyfriend to blame? Or her demanding management team? Or was it possible that Amy was failed by the people meant to protect her the most? Her own parents. Lauren Ash investigates. (laughs) Thanks, Christy. Could not love that that's just your thing now. Well, once you started doing the uh, reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, <laughs> I was like, I guess Lauren Ash Investigates is uh, sticking. It's sticking. I, what I like is that's what this is. This show's a journey. Yep. Uh, we're just, I mean, It's Your Bitch comes in. Yeah. Lauren Ash Investigates, reporting for True Crime. Good night, Dave Grohl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not... You sound like a parrot. <laughs> I'm not uh, over the parrot from uh, oh, the God. Edgar Allan Poe episode, I guess. <laughs> Evermore. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a solid parrot. Just no. <laughs> Thank you so much. Ever so coolly. <laughs> that's my other new one. It's sticking. It's sticking yeah, around. Look, it gives me life. Thank you. It's my. Thank f- you. I shouldn't say it's my favorite scene in that movie because. It's a funeral. Yeah. It's just, it's not even favorite. It's just the way he delivers that line. I know. Sticks in my soul. And so it's my quotable line from that movie of all of the things I could quote from Love Actually. Of course. Liam Neeson or Neeson's. Uh, (laughs) But he delivers it more like fighting tears. Like, yeah, ever so coolly. That's how he delivers it. But when I yeah. started saying it on the show, I've 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 taken it to like groundskeeper Willie level. <laughs> Ever securely. Like it's like getting into like I don't even know what it is, but it makes I... me laugh. It makes me laugh and that's it. And and isn't that what this is all about? We want to inform the people and we want to entertain. Yeah, because the rest of it is death. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well. Look, do they want to learn or not? <laughs> It's, you're gonna get, you're gonna yeah. get darkness. You, yeah, exactly. And, uh, That's right. We're balancing so, out the darkness. Thank with you. With our shining personalities. Absolutely. All right, we're gonna just jump right into it. Yeah. Amy Winehouse. In 1976, Mitchell Winehouse was 25 years old and working at a casino when he married 21-year-old pharmacist Janice Seaton. Janice was born in the U.S. but had grown up in the Jewish community of East London in England. Mitch and Janice were opposites. Mitch, outgoing, quick to chat, make jokes, also quick to lose his temper. But Janice, quiet, even timid. Opposites attract, they say. In his late teens and early 20s, Mitch said he was singing semi-professionally. I don't know how true or false that is, but I do believe it when he says that there was singing always going on in his family. Uh, There were also four professional musicians on Janice's side, so music was definitely in Amy's blood. After they got married, Mitch's mom, Cynthia, became the mom Janice never had. She did have a mother, but her mother was apparently... 
uh, not great, strained relationship. And so Janice and Cynthia became quite close. Mitch and Janice had a son named Alex in 1979. Mitch was driving a cab at the time. This was apparently a very traditional occupation for a working-class Jewish Londoner at that time. And then on September 14th, 1983, at Chase Farm Hospital, Amy Jade Winehouse was born. Uh, Amy, part being Jewish was really part of her kind of identity. Um, her family didn't observe all the traditions strictly, but she would often introduce herself by saying, I'm Amy, I'm Amy Winehouse. That's a Jewish name. So, uh, <laughs> that's just an example of, uh, she, it was something she was always interested in reading about all of the above. She really did have a huge interest and connection to that part of her, uh, lineage. She was a clever, curious child who tended to get into trouble. Mischievous, bold, daring. Mitch says in his book, Amy, my daughter. Yep, we'll get into that later. That when Amy once saw the attention her brother got from their parents when he was choking, that Amy pretended to choke, starting what Mitch describes as a lifelong habit of attention-seeking. And buckle in, because Mitch is going to be a challenge throughout this whole episode. Oh. <laughs> I should have seen that coming after the Britney episode, but okay. oh, yeah. Well, just wait. Oh. Mitch worked long hours as a cabbie and was often away from home. When he did come home late, he had a habit of waking Amy up to play with him, which Janice justifiably found very disruptive. Mitch doted on Amy and was described, she was described as a daddy's girl, which was a phrase she later had tattooed on her shoulder. She copied her father when he sang and he encouraged her. By the age of five, Amy said she wanted to go into showbiz. A cousin of Amy's notes, she was definitely an unusual child, very precocious. But there was also a quieter, less confident side to Amy. Janice says she was always very cheery, but she was also shy. She's never been an easy child. Those two things didn't make me feel like she sounded difficult. Maybe she was difficult in other ways, but cheery and shy just sounded like, you know, an interesting a, kid. But a maybe dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I get that. So. Amy started school and met her lifelong friends Juliet Ashby and Lauren Franklin. An early report card of Amy's says the only real interest she has is performance, is extremely articulate, has the maturity to engage and empathize, and is often perceptive. Juliet remembers them taking turns crying and running out of class, so the other one would run after to comfort her. She also remembers that once she and Amy teased a boy, saying that they wouldn't be his friend unless he pulled down his underwear, which he did, he denies this to this day. Uh, Lauren Franklin remembers Amy as an advanced reader, spelling bee champ, and a whiz at math, just like her mom. She loved books and puzzles and word games. She also had a big interest in boys, described as a naughty girl. Lauren's mom once shouted at Amy for telling Lauren stuff she shouldn't have known about at such a young age. So... Mitch worked in three careers during his marriage to Janice, in the gaming industry, as a cab driver, and as a double-glazing salesman. But we're not talking donuts, we're talking windows. In the window biz, he worked alongside a woman named Jane, who was a marketing manager, 13 years younger than him. She was 20 when she started working at his firm, and you know exactly where this is going. Jane and Mitch first became friends. She even met his family. In one interview, Mitch says, It was just a friendship for ages, but then there was an affair. But yet, in another interview he gave, he said, I met another woman when Amy was about 18 months old. We worked together. We were having an affair. But another eight or nine years were to pass before I left home. I was a coward, but I felt that Amy was over it pretty quick. 
Oh, yeah. So Janice found out about the affair. She seemingly tried to tolerate it. She felt like Mitch wanted to keep both of them going, and she was like, no, that's not going to last long term. Uh, Ultimately, when Amy was nine in 1992, Mitch left home to live with Jane. Uh, Jane was 28 that year, and Mitch, I believe, was turning 42 that December. He stayed home until Alex, uh, Amy's brother, turned 13 and had his bar mitzvah. I guess then he felt like he had, like, done his job. He'd raised his boy to be a man or some bullshit. Um, Mm. But apparently the kids were completely in shock when this happened because uh, Mitch and Janice tried not to fight in front of them. So there hadn't been, like, a lot of animosity in the house, and they were, like, very, very confused and, and shocked. Alex withdrew. Amy seemed less disturbed at first, but it did have a profound effect on her. And I will be so bold as to say it was the root of all the issues that led to her self-medication, which led to her death. But I am only speculating. Oh, boy. So Amy herself says she was good natured, nervous and nice until she was nine. But that when her parents separated, she thought she could wear whatever she wanted. She could swear she could wear makeup. She thought this is really cool. And both parents somehow interpreted that as Amy being over it. They didn't see that as being, I don't know, a red flag that maybe she was, I don't know, struggling. She was nine. Janice maintains that the divorce was difficult on everyone. She doesn't think it was so bad on Amy. And I feel like she's gaslighting me when she says that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. come on. Amy literally publicly said, and I quote, I knew I could be horrible to my mom because my dad wasn't there to shout at me. Now that he's gone, I can wear miniskirts. I can swear at my mom. Amy was clearly wanting boundaries and discipline, and she literally asked her mother for it. She, This is a quote of Amy's. She said that she would say to her mother, Oh, mom, you're so soft with me. I can get away with murder. You should be tougher, mom. Janice has said, Well, I just wasn't strong enough just to say stop. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, Amy also once said, when my dad was there, he was never there, which I think is also a heartbreaking and very telling quote. Mm-hmm. She says she feels like her mom was always a single mom. After the divorce, Mitch stayed in regular contact with both Amy and her brother, Alex. There was always a room for them wherever he was living. But in 2003, Amy told The Guardian in an interview that Mitch was a, quote, shady sort of man who moved every two years. She said, I've no idea what he was trying to run from. Well, I have a couple ideas. The big one being a money trouble. Mm. (laughs) Mitch was declared bankrupt in 1993 around the exact same time he left the family, which he conveniently leaves out of his book that he wrote. Hmm. He became bankrupt because he couldn't pay his debts. But I'm not just talking about him personally. I'm talking about the business he ran. And I'll get into that more in a minute. Mitch does say in his book that he felt so guilty about leaving his family, he'd buy the kids expensive gifts and give them money, which I'm sure helps make those situations feel even more confusing for children. Of course. The song What Is It About Men is a song of Amy's that she wrote that Mitch admits he believes is in part about him. She talks about someone who was a family man and that she doesn't want to repeat his mistakes. She also mentions her mother specifically. After the separation, Janice enrolled Amy at a Saturday morning stage school. At this time, Amy was described as loud, excitable, energetic, doing cartwheels in the hallways, really hyperactive, an enthusiastic dancer, a good loud singer, and an impressive child actress, and her comedic timing was noted as being spot on. She was so good in a school production of Little Shop of Horrors that she got on a walk-on part in a 1994 English National Opera production of Don Quixote. 
And in his book, Mitch claims that he discussed Amy's theatrical ambitions with Susie Earnshaw, who ran that Saturday stage school. But Susie Earnshaw says she has no memory of ever meeting Mitch during all three years that Amy attended that school. In fact, she says Mitch never came to the shows. Her mom was always there, but I never saw her dad ever. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Childhood friend Lauren Franklin says, let me tell you, Mitch wasn't around until his daughter became famous. Of course. uh Uh-huh. But she loved him. That's her dad. Absolutely, her dad is her dad. She wanted to make him happy, but believe me, he was not there. There wasn't a father figure around. But Mitch's mother, Cynthia, was around. She was what you could even call a stage grandmother, She once berated a director who didn't cast Amy in a production of Annie. Uh, Cynthia was obviously Mitch's mom, but she did help Janice raise their children, which I find very interesting. I think it's great, but it's just interesting, you know what I mean, that it wasn't. Yes. Um, Amy saw herself in her grandmother, Cynthia, and would often listen to her while she would try and defy other adults. I also just want to say as a quick aside, I should have made this a side note. There is a side note. There you go. There's a video of Amy as a kid in a production of Grease where she played Rizzo. And she's a kid. That checks. Yeah. That energy level checks. Yeah. But this is the thing. She's a kid. So she's like, you know, kind of acting like a kid would. But then she sings and you literally are like, what the fuck? Like it's almost, it, it, it doesn't make sense. Like it kind of starts to melt your brain. Because she's this little kid with this voice that, like, I'll try and find the clip and post it. Hopefully it doesn't get taken down for copyright or something. But it's wild to watch because it was literally like, oh, that's cute. She's little and she sounds like she's 25. Like, her voice was just, even at that age, it's unbelievable. So post-divorce, Janice was always struggling to cope. Um, Oh, sorry, excuse me. Even before the divorce, I should say, she had Alex and then immediately started having headaches and tiredness. She had she was diagnosed with postpartum, went on antidepressants. But later in her life, it was discovered it was actually MS, Um, which is interesting. Still, Lauren Franklin, again, Amy's childhood friend, said, I love Janice, but she's a very weak person. She always has been. She's never been able to stand up to Amy. She would say, Amy, don't say that. But meanwhile, Amy's saying, I hate you, you fucking bitch. And this was when we were very young. She was just very weak, bless her. Which, again, I thought was a very interesting... It was just an interesting take that it was like, you know, often in the things I've seen with Janice, even when Janice talks about when Amy won her Grammy, she's like, it was Amy's best moment of her life, but I was dealing with my MS. It's like, does, why do you even have to bring that up? I, I understand. I'm not down, not downplaying MS is a, is a very large challenge and I do not in any way want to downplay that. But why are you saying it in the same breath? Do you know what I mean? Like, why isn't your daughter, why can't you just say that Grammy was the best moment of Amy's life? Because then the attention only goes to Amy. It doesn't go to both of them. I'm building a pattern. (laughs) I'm just showing that the student work is listening. I wanted you to. (laughs) So Lauren Franklin says she also feels that Amy changed after Mitch had his affair. She said that Amy became very naughty. 
Um, They ended up going to different high schools, and Amy, she says, started to adopt a new way of speaking around that time. As a child, Amy had been very well-spoken, but now she started to speak like she was brought up in inner London. She maintained this fake working-class accent for the rest of her life, and and Lauren says it got even broader until it sounded almost cockney. None of us speak like that, Lauren says. And this I find fascinating, because I had never heard that before. Um. And I, again, check my sources, but it's interesting to me that she, it's like she wanted to become someone else. As soon as her dad left, she just wanted, again, psychologist hat can't come off of this head, even if I try. We'll get into more of it later. But along that line, Amy became disruptive in class. She often skipped school. Mitch says she was just bored. She would stay up late, then not want to go to school in the morning. Janice would call Mitch, saying Amy didn't want to get out of bed. And it seems that Amy did feel guilty about all of this, because in December 1995, when Mitch turned 45, Amy sent him a birthday card that was signed, Your Favorite Car Crash of a Daughter. Which is funny, but just remember, in 1995, Amy was only 12. And that's how she was talking about herself. Oh, God. Okay. Which, again, I say not as judgment, I say completely from a place of compassion. If a 12-year-old is calling themselves a car crash, that's a red flag, in my opinion. Yeah, look, there's a reason she's a blanket, girl. (laughs) Thank you very much. So Mitch says that Amy got the idea to apply to go to theater school on her own. But Susie Earnshaw says that she remembers Janice asking Susie whether she thought Amy was talented enough to apply to go to benefit or to benefit to going from uh to going to drama school um Susie said yes suggested Amy apply for a scholarship to the Sylvia Young Theater School Amy's application said and I quote all my life I have been loud to the point of being told to shut up adding that she believes she inherited her voice from her dad she also writes, mostly I have this dream to be very famous. It's a lo- lifelong ambition, which is very interesting because so often later in life she talked about how she never wanted to be famous, um, which I'm not saying means anything one way or the other. I mean, kids say what kids say, but it's just interesting to me again when we're building all of this together. Regardless, she won a half scholarship to the school and she started April 14th, 1997, five months before start- before turning 14. Monday to Wednesday was academics. Thursday, Friday was dance, drama, and singing. She was described by her classmates as a brainiac and hilarious. Sylvia Young herself said, I think she has a tremendous brain. Her English teacher thought she'd be a novelist one day, but she also got bored easily and she didn't like discipline. She always got in trouble for having earrings in, which you weren't supposed to, so she'd take them out, apologize, but eventually just put them back in. Of course. And then one day, she pierced her upper lip herself which concerned her friends um, while she maintained it was no big deal. She had a small part in the BBC comedy series The Fast Show in 1997, but singing soon became her focus, um, especially at Christmas time. Now, the children from this school would sing at, oh, forgive me, Marlebon Station? Oh, all the Brits are screaming at me, and I apologize. Um, She sang a song called Once in Royal David City so powerfully that everyone in the station, one of her Uh, childhood friends remarks stopped and listened and started to weep like her voice was just so amazing even as a kid puberty starts to hit she starts drinking and smoking her friends do say that at this time they didn't feel like it was problematic everybody was doing it she wasn't doing it to excess um she did look very mature for her age so could often get away with buying booze for her friends 
Her theater school friends would start to have weekend sleepovers. People started to have sexual encounters. Mm. Tyler James, whose real name is Kenneth Gordon, claims they were together at the time, but it's unclear when. Um, They first met when Amy was 13, and he did remain one of her lifelong friends. More on him later. Amy got her first tattoo at age 15, which was Betty Boop on her back. Her mom was horrified. Uh, Mm. Over the next few years, Amy would get a dozen or so tattoos, and Mitch said he learned just not to argue with her about it. And to that I say, she was trying to get you to argue with her about it. That was what she was trying to do her entire life, in my opinion. Oh, boy. Also, and here's where it starts to get worse. When she was 15, one day she said to her mother, I've got this really great diet. I eat whatever I want, and then... I just bring it back up. Oh. Janice said, I didn't think that deeply of it. My thought was that it would pass. So then I told Mitchell about it, and he also pushed it aside, not taking it seriously. That basically is bulimia, and it doesn't pass. No shit, Janice. No shit. And it's so sad to me when you see the home videos of Amy as a kid through this lens, because she's always self-deprecating and always making jokes about herself eating or being fat. And to me, it is just so heartbreaking that she literally told her mother and her mother did nothing. Did nothing. And bulimia, by the way, played a, played a role in her eventual death. She, was, she struggled her entire life. And again, I'll get into that more as we get into that more. But it's just, it's so sad to me that she told her and her mom was just like, no big deal. So, around that time, big shocker here, Amy's academics started to slip. I wonder why. Oh, boy. Janice was warned she might get kicked out of school, though Sylvia Young herself warned Janice against taking her out of that school because she felt that it was a better environment for Amy specifically than another school might provide. But Janice immediately took her out anyway and sent her to a private secondary school. Around that time, Janice started dating a financial advisor who also had two teenagers, Amy just did whatever she wanted. She'd skip school. She'd have her boyfriend over to the house. Amy once said that her mom would come home from work and just find Amy there lying around the house with her boyfriend. Any time of day. Mm. Yet, Amy still managed to pass all of her classes with B's and C's, essentially without even really trying or going to school. So to that I say, brainiac indeed. Sylvia Young recommended Amy to the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. Bill Ashton... Founder of the orchestra said she was a 35-year-old singer in a 16-year-old's body. He also noted that he never met her father. Mm. She then attended, yeah, she then attended the Brit School, which is kind of like the New York School of Performing Arts. She started August 29th, 2000, a month before she turned 17. Teachers said she was funny, challenging, robust, forthright, an individual who stood out, but also was so upbeat that they had to wonder if she was really that happy. Which she wasn't. Amy was suffering with depression, and Janice suggested it was bipolar. Amy started taking antidepressants, and she once said that Soroxet made her really loopy. She said she didn't know what depression was. She just knew she felt funny sometimes. And she said, I think it's a musician thing. That's why I write music. I'm not a messed up person. There's a lot of people who suffer depression and don't have an outlet. They can't pick up a guitar for an hour and feel better. Now, I think, and I'm going to get into this again later, but I think she had undiagnosed ADHD, which, as somebody who was recently diagnosed, goes undetected in girls all the time. Um, 
she was again and i i don't have time or all i would break it down much further but she just has a lot of the signs she was super intelligent again she was passing classes even when she did not prep at all she was easily bored uh super hyper there's a lot of things here um but again i'll circle back to that towards the end amy and i and again i think that they were saying she had bipolar i don't know that that's true i think that the, I, the undiagnosed ADHD, again, she may have also had depression, but I think that there was a few things that were missed, is my point. Sure. And I would not trust Janice uh, <laughs> to diagnose anything in well, her daughter's life because Janice can kiss my ass and we're well, barely I, I, in this. <laughs> I Thank you very much. I also love that Janice diagnosed the bulimia and ignored it. So... <sighs> Yep. I mean, they're making me feel like mother of the year, you know, and I almost kicked out one of my kids' cats in the middle of the night. Wouldn't have done it. Wouldn't have had the heart to. But mother of the year. I think by, to by the yahoos. time we get to the end of this, you're going to yeah. order yourself a trophy. Just know that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if I, if I could get it engraved with anything I want, <laughs> there's going to be nothing but trophies on those Listen. shelves behind me. I know a guy. Amy left the Brit school after nine months. It was the same year that Janice got her MS diagnosis after she collapsed on a trip to Italy. Amy was working on a clothes stall in Camden Market and also found part-time employment at World Entertainment News Network, or WENN, which was a small press agency founded by friend Juliet Ashby's father. She worked the night shift, and basically what she would do is sift through newspaper and magazines for show business stories, which were then checked, rewritten, and sent out on the wire to foreign publications, and then if they used them, she'd get paid. This is also when she met her first serious boyfriend, Chris Taylor. He was a journalist seven years older than her. Amy was madly in love with him and wrote some songs about having the hots for him before she eventually just lost interest in him. The song Stronger Than Me was apparently about him. Meanwhile, Tyler James, her friend since she was 13, was trying to get a singing career going with the help of PR man Nick Shamansky. Nick suggested that Tyler record a duet, so Tyler asked Amy. They delivered the demo to Nick's office, and he thought the recording was of an old classic jazz singer, didn't believe that it was a young girl. Tyler assured him it was really Amy, so Nick set a meeting with her. Nick said, you should record some songs, you'll get a record deal. Amy was like, what do you get out of it? Which to that I say, good for you, Amy. (laughs) Yeah, way to be skeptical. Um... Shemansky was part of Brilliant 19 Management. He was only 19 years old at the time and basically just tried to pretend he was a talent scout. He admits that he was completely out of his depths. He worked as an office junior for a promotions company owned by Simon Fuller. Now, Simon Fuller is a British entrepreneur, artist manager, film and TV producer. Uh, And for context, he's the creator of the Idols television format. So like Pop Idol, American Idol, shows like that. Like... Uh, like we're talking like the Simon that I'm thinking of, right? Not no, not Simon Simon Fuller. What's that Simon. guy's name? What that what's his name? Simon Cowell. There it is. Yes. Is he as much um, an asshole as the other Simon? I don't know. I didn't really get, okay. get into too much about Simon Fuller, um, other than he was uh he owned the company that this guy worked for. So that company did a lot of things. They also produced uh So You Think I Can So You Think You Can Dance. Oh uh, that's yeah. That was my heart and soul for over a decade. Well, I just haven't had time in the last few years, but I'll get back. Nobody does. I'll get back. So Amy was offered a management deal followed by recording and publishing contracts. She was making money pretty quickly, so she didn't have to, like, 
struggle as an artist for a long time. Uh, it was sure. really like getting a big break, which, get, listen, I get it. Her voice was unbelievable. So she was making 250 pounds or $397 a week through a stipend from the management company while she worked on the demos that would be used to get her the record deal. Um, Nick had asked her, did she ever write her own songs? She said, no, just poems, but... She, he thinks that she knew that they could have been songs. They were just very, very personal. So maybe she was kind of being shy about it. Later, she said she wouldn't write anything unless it was directly personal to her. She didn't feel she could tell the story properly if she hadn't done it herself. In the early days, she also said she never wanted to let it just be sad. She always wanted to put a punchline in each one of her songs, to which I say, writing about your personal heartbreaks and making jokes at your own expense reminds me of myself. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> yeah. But we'll see more and more of that as we go. Anyway, um, so her voice again, in that era too, I mean, we're talking about, this was like the early 2000s. So this was like, you know, boy bands. This was Britney Spears, you know, that whole kind of era. Yeah. And she sounded like, you know, Ella Fitzgerald. Like she had a voice that was like c completely out of nowhere. No one, I feel like, knew what to do with her even. So she was free to write and record at her own pace. She worked with young musicians and producers like Stefan Scarbeck at Wayfair Studios in London. Uh, he was seven years older than her, and they worked on songs together on her debut album, Frank. After a while, her management team sent her to the U.S. to work with someone named Commissioner Gordon Williams. I liked that. Nice. Oh, Batman, Batman, Batman nickname. Um, he had engineered a successful album for Lauryn Hill, and they worked on What Is It About Men together. She then continued to work on her album in Miami with Salam Remy, who was a big part in making both Frank and her next album, Back to Black. Salam said he let her put her wit in songs and that she was like a 65-year-old jazz singer. Uh, Amy letter later said that Salam was the most inspirational producer she ever worked with and that he could draw the artistry out of her. So she got a music publishing deal with EMI, and just before Christmas 2002, she got a record deal with Island Universal. Now, usually a record deal is a huge deal for an artist, but Amy failed to show up for the meeting. I guess she said she thought she already signed the papers. Oh, Classic. boy. Classic Amy. So Mitch was so excited. And Amy just said, hey, can, don't tell grandma, Cynthia, his mom, right? She's so close to her. Cynthia helped raise her. Right. She's like, just don't tell her the news. I want to tell her myself because I'm just so excited about this. And Mitch promised her, of course I won't. And then called her as soon as Amy left and told her the news. Because he said he just couldn't help himself. Is he still alive? Oh, yeah, baby. You know what I was going to say? That's going to uh, depend on how I'm going to verbalize my feelings about him. But uh -huh. I uh, have decided I'm not going to let it stop me. So I will, the remainder of this episode, just talk about what a steaming pile of shit he was as a father. <laughs> oh, if you think it's bad now. Come on. Just give your, let me put it this way. Give yourself somewhere to go. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Yeah. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. in 2002, when she got the publishing deal, she immediately moved into her own flat in North London. She said she wanted to move out, out on her own since the age of 13. She wanted her own space to sit around, write music, smoke weed. She says she'd smoke weed all day and you can't exactly do that in your mom's house. Childhood friend Juliet Ashby moved in with Amy. She says they took care of each other. Um, a man named Guy Moot, who was the UK president of Sony and ATV Music Publishing, said that he heard two of Amy's songs on a CD. They weren't hit songs type songs, but they conveyed such an emotion that he was just blown away. And it's not the kind of artist that you normally 
put a lot of, you know, it's not the kind of virus you normally see, but he just had to take the leap of faith and invest. So he, that's why she got this deal, basically. Um, sure. And his boss even questioned him when he committed to giving her so much money as an unsigned artist. And he was like, I'm just going to put my faith in her. But apparently it was like rarely ever done to give one of these deals just okay. for context. So between the deals, Amy earned a combined advance of 500,000 pounds or 795 thousand dollars at the time which obviously a lot of money for a teen a company was formed called cherry westfield which janice would help to run but mitch wasn't allowed to take part in running that company why well i said i'd get back to it and i'm talking about his bankruptcy problems remember those (sighs) well see he was a director of a company that went bankrupt while owing millions of dollars in debts so when you do that it has some consequences Um, One of them being, if he took part directly or indirectly in the promotion, formation, or management of any company, he risked a fine or even jail time. Amy wasn't even allowed to take advice from him. So years later, when all of that expired, Mitch was appointed to the board of directors of Cherry Westfield and became a director of the other companies created to handle Amy's money. He wrote in his book, however, that he was very involved in Amy's finances, even though he was disqualified in many ways from doing so. He said that he and Janice encouraged Amy to invest some money in property and not blow through it quickly. It's just interesting to me that he made it sound like he was like this mastermind at a time even before now where he really wasn't allowed to. So it's interesting. Amy broke up with Chris Taylor before the album Frank came out. At first, she was angry and upset, but in a 2003 interview, she called him a pussy man, which I thought was, again, I I shouldn't laugh, but come on. She had spunk. Um, But even though she seemed confident and spunky, she was also prone to bouts of depression and self-hate. Juliet Ashby said when they lived together as flatmates, Amy would bang her head against her bedroom wall, drink, and smoke pot to excess, and she said that she worried about Amy a lot. The album was named Frank, both for Frank Sinatra and the directness of her lyrics. Released in Britain in 2003, Frank won an Ivor Novello Award for Stronger Than Me for Best Contemporary Song. Um, That's a songwriting award. Amy was never fully happy with the album. She felt there was too many musicians and producers over too long a period. She felt there was no cohesion. And Island Records didn't even release it in the U.S. as they didn't feel she was ready for the U.S. market. She did shows and press to support the album nonetheless, And she attacked her record label in those interviews, saying, and I quote, It's so frustrating because you work with so many idiots. They were nice idiots, but idiots nonetheless. And they know they were idiots. Needless to say, that did alienate the people at Island Records. (laughs) Oh. Yeah. Yeah. In March 2004, when asked if her record label, again, under the company, uh, or no, sorry, the the record label, so I think Simon Fuller, That was the one that, it's very confusing. But anyway, the record label also had S Club 7 and the Spice Girls. Okay. And so, (laughs) yes, they asked if, if, you know, they ever tried to change how Amy talked or molded herself into another image. And she said, among other things, I got my own style and I write my own songs. And if someone has so much of something already, there's very little you can add. Which I thought was such a great answer. If you got so much of something already, there's very little you can add to it. I was like, yes, Amy, I love this. Uh, I wish she could have stayed in that place longer, Um, that confidence. But then the interviewer also talked about how he loved that she sounded so common, that her voice was so common. And she says, they gave me elocution lessons and they didn't stick. But that's so funny because now Juliet Ashby has said that this voice was not hers, Hmm. that it was kind of put on. So, again, 
Food for thought. Very interesting. Now, Amy, her entire career had crippling stage fright. She would drink before shows and then over time started to drink during shows and then drink more during shows and then drink nonstop during shows. When she wasn't performing, she would go to the pub. Her fave pub at this time was the Good Mixer in Inverness Street, Camden Town. The Good Mixer was like a second home for her. She'd do her makeup at the bar, bring her guitar, play songs. When it was slow, she would talk books with the barmen. She started an informal reading group with those barmen and even mentions in the liner notes in Back to Black, thank you to the founder of the PWRB, People Who Read in Bed, Gilly Mixer. Gilly was an Australian bar staff member at the pub, and Amy could spend most of her days there and often half the night, so they spent a lot of time together. Amy didn't drink wine or beer. Uh, She would order shots, uh, usually doubles of Jack Daniels at that time. And then over time, she would switch to Sambuca, then vodka, tequila, Jaeger bombs, which is Jägermeister in Red Bull. After a while, she just started drinking everything mixed together in a pint glass. Oh, boy. She was physically small. She was five foot three and very tiny. Uh, but she could consume huge quantities of booze. And she did. A neighbor once called Juliet to tell her that Amy had fallen and hit her head. Juliet and Lauren went over, and Amy had a golf ball lump on her head. They said that the house looked like people had been squatting there. It was dirty. It stank. Amy was lying on the bed. They cleaned the house until 3 a.m. and then called her dad and Nick. Amy said, the thing is, because I was depressed, I wasn't eating. So obviously, you, you lose your appetite when you do stuff like that. So it wasn't like the amount I was drinking. It was more the speed. It was just very irresponsible, you know? But then when followed up and asked, would you drink first thing in the morning? She said, oh, yeah, I'd wake up and go for a bottle. Mm. So, again, keep in mind, this is this is early. We're talking like 2004 still at this point. Mm. Just keep this in mind. Summer of 2004, uh, she fell down after drinking once and hit her head again so badly she was taken to hospital. And then afterwards, she was taken to Mitch's house to recuperate. According to Mitch... Nick Skolansky, another one of her managers, Nick Godwin, and Mitch had a meeting. The two Nicks wanted to talk to Mitch about her drinking issues. Mitch said that Godwin suggested rehab, which was apparently the first time that the idea of rehab had ever been raised, which to that I say, how? But okay, 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 fine. All right, I'll give it to you. Fine. Um, Amy said no. Mitch agreed. She was fine. Uh, She still did visit a rehab center in Surrey, apparently at that time. And this, of course, was all of the inspiration for her famous song, Rehab, which, of course, we will talk about again later. But it's interesting to think, had she gone to rehab at a time when maybe it would have been good for her, that song would never have existed, potentially. But would she still be here? I mean, it's hard to speculate, obviously. You can't speculate, but... Amy once said, Success to me is having the freedom to work with whoever I want to work with, to always be able to just fuck everything off and go to the studio when I have to go to the studio. When she said that, an interviewer pointed out that her job is going to require more obligations as she becomes more successful. And Amy said, all I'm good for is making tunes, so leave me alone and I'll make the music. I just need time to make the music. That's going to be relevant later as well. Mm. She stopped working in January 2005. She was supposed to be writing an album, but she she just was kind of like, I don't really know what happened at that exact time, whether she wanted the break or, or what was up. But basically, she just ended up playing pool every day for about four hours and getting drunk She would to the point that she, people were like carrying her home. 
basically every night. Around that time, she brought, she brought, she bought a pop, she brought a property. She bought a property in Camden. Uh, she loved it there, that area in North London. Juliet says they were all happy for her, but it is when things started changing, and maybe that's because this is when she met one Blake Fielder Civil. Mm. Trash nightclub promoter Spikey Phil Maynell said that all the cool kids were in Camden bands, uh, and all the Camden bands played in Camden clubs, so it's clearly why Amy loved being in that area. It was like the cool place to be. Spikey ran a club, as I said, called Trash, and he recalls that there was a man called Blake Fielder at the time who gave out flyers for Trash. He says Blake loved girls, loved partying, and loved shagging. Blake was 17 months older than Amy. They met in the Good Mixer, Amy's favorite pub, in early 2005. Blake was covered in tattoos, which Amy loved, and Blake asked a friend about Amy, who apparently said that Blake was 10 years too young and the wrong color for her. I guess Amy, <laughs> Amy was dating a older black man at the time, and that was the explanation. Nonetheless, Amy and Blake started playing pool, which Amy loved, as I've already mentioned, and that she was very good at. And later, they went to another pub, and then after that, they went back to Amy's house and did, according to Blake, hook up. They were both seeing other people at that time, but Blake says he didn't think of it as infidelity. He said, she's just a bit naughty, and I was the same. So that's how we justify that, I suppose. <sighs> Amy once said, it wasn't really until I met Blake that he taught me that if you don't go for things, it taught me if you don't go for things, if you don't throw yourself into a situation, then you'll never know what might have been. Life is short, which to me is such a chilling quote now that we know that mm. Blake was the one who, of course, introduced her to hard drugs. But I digress. The drugs come later. Blake says they spent that summer together. She would call him twins, uh, that call them twins. That was their relationship. He says, and I quote, I liked to sabotage myself, and I think Amy liked to sabotage herself. I used to ask her why she was promiscuous and why she was more like a man with sex. It was indicative of someone who's had a traumatic event, maybe sexually themselves. So it made sense to me from the way she was. She says she wasn't abused when she was a kid. It was her dad leaving her mom that caused this and then not really seeing her dad. Blake then said that he understood because he cut his wrists when he was nine years old because, and I quote, I didn't really want to die. I just wanted my mom to leave my stepdad. Me and Amy were quite similar. Oh, wow. Okay. Trauma bonding is a dangerous thing. So Amy said of Blake, I fell in love with someone I would have died for. We were in love together. And that's like a real drug, isn't it? Oh, Amy, it feels like it. I know it feels like it. I know it feels like it. One story is that during the early stage of their romance in the late spring of 2005, Amy and Blake went to an exhibition of landscape paintings by John Virtue in the National Gallery. They loved it. They both had this amazing experience. Then they broke up. A short time later, Blake went back to the gallery to take another look at the exhibition and was surprised that Amy was there at that time on that day. They felt like it was meant to be. And so they got back together. When they got back together, they became a familiar sight around Camden. They were walking hand in hand or with their hands buried in each other's back jeans pockets. Around this time, uh, Amy had also started wearing her hair in her signature beehive that she was so known for. Around this time also, Amy started asking Nick, 
Shemansky to leave Simon Fuller to manage her on his away from the company. She didn't like being connected to S Club 7 and the Spice Girls, who were obviously also managed by Simon Fuller's company. Nick felt it would be disloyal to leave him at that point because, again, he was so young and just starting out, etc. August 2005, Lauren Franklin and Amy are on vacation in Spain. Amy wants Lauren to listen to this voice message from Blake. He told her he didn't actually want to leave his girlfriend and that they'd probably be better as friends. And Amy apparently just starts obsessing about it. All she wanted was for him to want to see her, and that's when things started to get messy. Now, the timeline here is a little bit tough because they broke up and got back together so many times, mm. and it was very tumultuous. So I tried to piece it back, piece it together as best I could, and I think this is pretty close. But again, it's tough to navigate. So they got back together and then split again when Amy slept with one of Blake's friends because she thought that by doing that, it would end it. She was like, I thought that that would like, if I really hurt him, then he'd never talk to me again. And if I slept with one of his friends and he would never, ever talk to me again, it would be the nail in the coffin. She says, we just broke each other's hearts repeatedly. Um, but when it finished, I went nuts. I went absolutely mad. I was the most reckless. I just went really mad. Everything reminded me of him. I looked in my fridge and thought of him. I'd fucking walk up the stairs. I'd see blood up the walls and think of him because I always used to punch the walls. Mm. Their pet names for each other were Lioness and Christopher Crocodile. Amy got a pocket tattooed over her heart and had Blake, Blake's, like Blake apostrophe S, tattooed above the pocket. Blake felt flattered. Blake had Amy's name tattooed behind one of his ears, I believe. Um, after that, they broke up again. This time, Amy told Blake to go, and she started dating a chef named Alex Clare, whom her girlfriends really liked, but she found kind of dull. There it is. Uh-huh. Blake was her obsession and was the inspiration for the album Back in Black that obviously changed her life. Some think that Bla Blake latched onto Amy because of her success. Others think he really loved her. We'll see what you all think by the end of the episode. Summer 2005. Amy had been booked on a private gig with another singer named Natalie Williams in Greece. She started. Amy started drinking as soon as she arrived in Skiathos? Skyathos? Mm-hmm. Uh, and passed out drunk backstage on the first night. It was supposed to be a three-night gig. They could not wake her up, so she could not perform. They sent her home the next day without pay. November 2005, she was singing at a charity event at the Cobden Club and was in a particularly grumpy mood, telling her audience to be quiet, and decided to just leave the stage after three songs. Um, Amy talked often about suffering mood swings and that alcohol did tend to make her more, more vo volatile. Shortly after that, she called Nick Gatfield. That's right, the third Nick in this story. So many Nicks. Uh, he worked at Island Records, and she told him that she wanted to change management. He said he would support whatever she wanted to do. Amy apparently had still not forgiven Nick Godwin for trying to get her to go to rehab after the Frank album, and she also decided it was time to move on from Nick Skolansky. She dropped them and signed with Metropolis Music, who was run, run by Raymond Ray Cosbitt. He ingratiated himself to Amy by sending her champagne and getting friendly with Mitch at football games. Amy grew quite fond of Ray Ray, as she called him, but he struggled to control her. One of Amy's friends, named Don Letts, said God couldn't manage Amy Winehouse. Oh. Which part of part of me loves, but part of me again sees that it's a bigger, bigger issue. So Ray Ray did the best he could, and obviously. Her second album, Back in Black, was massive worldwide, and he did guide her through that process. Ray was a promoter, which meant his goal would have been to get her on the road as much as possible, and many close to her, other than her parents, were concerned about this given the state 
that she was in at the time. She was very vulnerable on the road, obviously. Uh, Skolansky says that he and Amy were too close, uh, that their relationship should have been more about business, but they were 16 and 19 when they first met, so they didn't understand that at the time. They had spent all of these years together, and then suddenly he wasn't with her anymore, and he said it was quite strange for him. December 2005, Amy travels to Salam Remy's house in Miami. At this point, the label is thinking of letting her go, because as we know, in January of that year, she just kind of wasn't working, but she did owe an album at that time. And they're probably at this point going TikTok, Lady Jane. So the album calls Salam Remy and says, are you sure you want to do this? Because she's been a problem. And Salam says, listen, even if you dropped her, I would pay to have her come here into my house and sing because that shit fucking moves me. Which I was like, oh, bless this man. He really, he really supported her and believed in her. Um, He said, that on this this trip, this visit where she was writing with him in Miami, she did not drink the entire time. She sat in his backyard, wrote in her little notebook, and that was it. And I think that this is interesting. To me, this is a moment that that is noteworthy because she was doing what she said she wanted to do. She was able to focus. She talked about how all she wanted to do was be able to work with who she wanted to work with and do it on her own timeline. That's something that she yeah. said prior. And... She hadn't been. She hadn't been able to work with who she wanted to work with, and she was being forced into this timeline, right? Which felt uncomfortable to her. And speaking as someone myself who has been diagnosed with ADHD, I can say those are two things I understand and agree with. Uh, And I think that a lot of people uh, may agree with me on that. Um, And that when she was able to do the thing that she wanted on the timeline that she wanted, she didn't need the other stuff. She was hyper-focusing. She was in it. You know what I mean? But the rest of the time, it's like, I feel like it was a it was a self-medicating thing. And I also think that because she has described Blake as a drug, she also said things like, I write songs because I'm fucked up in the head, which, again, breaks my heart. I think this could have been a, a something else. And my other thing I'm throwing into the mix now is that I'm like, was she a sex and love addict? Now, there, that's a interesting people have different connotations i think i think it's something that people don't talk about a lot um but sex addiction and love addiction talked about together are interesting because they're intrinsically linked but being you can be one you can be the other you can be both um but there's a lot that i've heard from her and seen with her especially with blake that it feels like a love addiction and she was you know notably promiscuous she she did indulge in infidelity and stuff like that which some may think like leads her into a sex addiction i don't think so i think that that it was emotional and i think that it's again tied to childhood which i mean gosh everything we do is tied to childhood but um i just think that this is this is a turning point where to me if there was somebody other than Salam, who was living across the world from her full time, seeing that it was like, if we're encouraging her in this way and letting her do what she wants to do with the people she wants to do it with on her own timeline, she's she's not drinking. And it's not because anybody's forcing her to. She just doesn't feel like she wants to. But alas. <laughs> Amy had obviously been writing lots of songs throughout her relationship and breakup with Blake. March 2006, she traveled to New York to meet Mark Ronson. She would tell him stories about Blake, and she wrote the lyrics and melody to the song Back to Black in two to three hours total. He came up with a riff on the piano. They did the whole song in less than an afternoon. Wow. Yeah. It just came out. He caught her at that magic moment. He says he couldn't understand why she was being called a procrastinating, troubled artist. 
because it was so easy. Um, she was drinking again at that time. I don't think that's either here or there. Uh, again, at this point to me, I feel like, I feel like it's an emotion. Again, I, I don't think it was a, a full blown, um, addiction issue yet. I think that at this point or, or, or the substance wasn't the issue. The substance was the, the way she was trying to deal with her other issues. I think still at this point. And I do think there's a point where it kind of crosses over into something else, into a dependence. Um, again, I'm speculating. I'm not an expert, but you know, this is why we do the show. We talk. <laughs> um, but so, yeah. So, and that song too, if you watch the footage in the Amy documentary, it shows that moments from that day of her recording that. And it is like goosebump chills, like unbelievable. I, th- I think that song is like one of the greatest songs of all time. Later, they were out on a walk one day and she was telling Mark Ronson the story about when her management tried to get her to go into rehab. And she said, when she was retelling the story, she said, and I said, no, no, no. And she said it in this really kind of emphatic way. And he just went, oh, that's a song. Like, that could totally be a song. So they go back to the studio. They start to come up with something. Then he took her to Brooklyn to record with the Dap Kings, uh, who is a band. And they recorded six of the 11 songs on the album live, which, again, is something that is not typically done these days. Um, The rest of the album was recorded with Salam Remy in Miami and overdubs were done in London later. And even though there was two producers on the album, this album does feel far more cohesive than Frank. Um, All the musicians on all the songs played live in the studios. Um, And like I said, it almost has an old fashioned feel to it if you listen to it, because it has that different vibe from music we hear now. It was around this time Amy got a call that her beloved grandmother Cynthia had fallen ill. Um, She said, my nan is the strongest woman in my entire life. All my strength I have from my nan. Uh, Her grandmother Cynthia did pass May 5th, 2006 of lung cancer and it killed Amy inside. Badly. Badly. Three months later, Amy is in London in studio. A man named Darkest Beast, who was working in A&R for the label, says they were making the back end of the record. She was having whiskey and Cokes at a lunch. She ordered a massive plate of food, then dessert, and she ate it all. Following that, she disappeared for about 45 minutes, came back, uh, and later the studio manager found Darkest and took him to the ladies' room, uh, where she pointed out that Amy had thrown up all over the bathroom. And that's when he says he realized something was seriously wrong. Stylist Lou Winwood says he first dressed Amy in 2003. At that time, she was a UK size 1012, which I believe is around a US 810, um, which is, again, a very slim, slim. Yeah. Um, but at this point in time, again, this is 2006, he was having to shop in children's stores because she was so tiny. Uh, oh. Amy explained her weight loss to people saying she was just using the gym more often. She confided in some, uh, saying she was exercising to cope with her mood swings. She said she wasn't doing it to lose weight, just to help her feel stable. She said, I'm self-medicating. That's why I go and do it. It makes me feel good. But in reality, as we know, she had obviously had this lifelong struggle with bulimia since childhood. I don't know if she was working out or not. She may have been as well. I don't know if there was any truth to that or not. Uh, Lou Winwood remembers the Back to Black album photo shoot. Uh, Amy was late. She showed up hungover. She had partied until dawn after a wedding in Essex and crashed in a country hotel. They finally found her there. A driver was sent to get her. When she got to the shoot, she was, to use Lou's term, a little worse for wear. He says he does remember kind of uh, seeing a little uh, cocaine maybe around the nose. Mm -hmm. Um, 
all she wanted to talk about was Blake. How it was a bit naughty of her to be cheating on Alex Claire with Blake, which she was. Lou said he felt bad for Alex, saying, I thought he was cool. I liked him. Uh, Amy said, I'm doing something bad. I don't care. I've just got to see him, meaning Blake. 2006, Blake is using cocaine, crack, and heroin by the time they started seeing each other, again, behind Alex Claire's back. Some say she started using drugs with Blake at this time. Others say it wasn't until after they were married and got back to England in June 2007. Um, Blake says he had been smoking heroin in front of her whichever time it was. He was super fucked up, to use his term, and she asked if she could try it. He said yes. And in a 2009 TV interview, and now remember, 2009 That was two years before Amy passed. He was giving a TV interview talking in depth about her drug use. They, of course, were no longer together at that time. But I want to say, take a nap, Blake. Take a nap. (sighs) He said, as far as I know, she only took it on certain occasions. She didn't always take it when I was with her. It took months, six, seven, eight months before she got bad. Either way, he did introduce her not only to heroin but also crack cocaine. For lack of better words, Jesus. I'm here. Yes. I'm going to have a lot more uh, to complain about, uh, about that particular gentleman. Oh, my God. Like, my mouth is full of rage. I get it. I like get it's, it. It's hard to say something because I'm like, oh, no, if I open my mouth, there's just going to be anger that comes up. <laughs> because that is so enraging uh, mm-hmm. to watch. So- know that someone who loves someone else is watching them just and they're OK with that. Um, but to that, I have to quickly say uh Christy, Christy, what was I thinking? Forgot to mention what you were drinking. Uh, That's right. I was so jazzed about getting right into this episode that I didn't mention my drinks. And also because they're kind of lame. I'm doing a water. I'm doing a Slurpee. My brain is so jagged. I wanted to stay away from the booze today. Yeah, you made a, you made a comment at the time. You said something about like I'm 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 boring or something. What are you drinking? So I thought that that was your. I thought we were just skimming over it. I just didn't uh, think of it because again, I don't usually drive the bus. Yeah, uh, but I'd say if you go back to the Carol Baskin episode where I drove the bus for the first time, uh, I've gotten better. But also, Gross. don't go back to the episode if you don't have to. It's it's. A difficult listen, specifically for me. Um, But speaking of drinks, I should top up my water. Let's take a quick break. Make sure you hydrate. Grab some nugs if you want to. Maybe some extra for us. Uh, And we'll be right back with more on Amy Winehouse on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm Mm-mm-mm. 
Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Before the break, Lauren was filling my body with rage over Blake. Mm -hmm. And if I know this show at all, and I think I do, um, (laughs) I know that that rage is only going to get worse. So, Lauren, uh, what am I going to rage about next? Oh, gosh, it's so hard to say because there's so much. Um, I I also should just quickly say, Christy did point out to me, I've been saying back to black and back in black. Uh, Amy's song and album is, of course, back to black. Black in black, back in black is of course ACDC. Um, that was just a slip of the tongue because uh, I have <laughs> been just burning the midnight oil. Uh, I know, I know my facts is my point. Of just course, a slip of the lip. Hey, but just two women getting, getting by. by. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well. Oh gosh. Yeah. What are you going to rage about? Oh dear. Well, spoiler alert. Probably any man. <laughs> I should. I love that I was like just skimming, and I'm like, oh, there's that. Oh, there's that. Just get into it, Ash. Get into oh, it. Oh boy. So Amy was definitely the boss, but she didn't set her part. A didn't set her part herself. <laughs> that see, it's a slip of the tongue. The facts are there, folks. The facts yeah. are there. Amy was definitely the boss, but she did not set herself apart from her bandmates. She chose the band members herself, and she paid their wages out of her own pocket. Even when her shows were canceled, to the end, anytime. She made sure everybody was paid in full out of her own pocket. <sighs> Not all artists would do that. I just want to make that clear. Um, boyfriend, Reg Travis, who she dated for the last two years of her life, once said that she said she felt like she had more of a backup singer energy than a lead. And because of that, she found talking to the audience surprisingly difficult during concerts, especially considering how witty she was. Like, it was interesting that it was so difficult for her. So, as I referenced before, she would drink before shows to get her confidence up, then started drinking during shows, and soon she was drinking more and more on stage. Her bandmates noticed that Amy could drink a bottle of vodka in no time. Many of them decided it would be best not to drink in front of her as it would encourage her, but no one seemed to be able to tell her that she'd had enough, not even her father. Jay Phelps, who played trumpet in her band, said, I didn't see Mitch saying no. I saw him a couple of times, and it's like, it's not like when we were in rehearsal and she was drinking a bottle of vodka, he was going, hey, daughter, what the hell are you doing? Give me that. He just let it happen. Phelps says that he would have liked to have seen Mitch not give her a drink or put limits on it. Like, for example, saying not drinking until after the show is done. Part of the problem is she wrote songs about her breakup with Blake and they were very sad and she was obliged to sing them every night. Back to Black, Wake Up Alone, and Some Unholy War were particularly upsetting to her, which, if you've heard them, you can probably understand why. 
amazing songs, very emotional. She said quite regularly to her audiences, the trouble is I've written all these depressing songs and now I got to go and sing them. Interest in the album in Britain in the fall and winter of 2006 grew. Her offstage antics also made headlines. She once heckled Bono at the Q Magazine Awards in London. Good for her. While he was giving a speech, she yelled, I don't give a fuck, which I think we can all agree. No one did. And (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Nobody nobody cares either way about Bono. Um, I'm kidding again. I don't have any problem with Bono. Anyway, uh, I do. The only problem I have is that I still can't get that U2 album off my iPhone and it's been years. (laughs) But anyway. (laughs) That was unnecessary it felt aggressive yes yes and the thing is i might have probably not uh have listened to it otherwise but shoving it down my face like you're the creature from alien i didn't care for that you know what's funny is i don't like i think overall you two is a pretty respected beloved band sure after they put that album on all the iphones i feel like it really polarized people after that it was like fuck you too again i'm not saying fuck you too i like a lot of you two songs but anyway it's still i just thought it was funny that amy was like i don't give a fuck anyway it should also be noted that that night amy was openly rolling joints at her table um to her point she didn't give a fuck of course uh In October of that year, she was invited on Charlotte Church's TV show filmed in front of a live studio audience. Uh, Amy's day started by doing a morning show, and Amy started having a Jack and Coke at 9 a.m. Then the record company took her out for a boozy lunch. Then she ended up playing pool at a pub, and then she went to film Charlotte Church's show. Mm. Amy had at that point been drinking all day, and no one tried to stop her. She was supposed to sing Beat It with Charlotte Church uh, in the like a big production number with horns and lights, but Amy had not learned the song and unfortunately was so inebriated that she could not read the teleprompter. The stage manager on set was horrified to learn that she had been drinking and the girl running the lights was crying with laughter. There was one semi-usable take, which was what was televised, but uh, people have said that Amy kind of seemed like a drunk girl at a karaoke night at best. Mm. Um, obviously, this made headlines and, of course, increased her celebrity, which is, again, the double-edged sword right? with so many people in this era. Rehab, the single, rose to number seven on the charts, so the song You Know I'm No Good was quickly made the second single. They were putting together a quick promotional video and stylist Lou Winwood took clothes to Amy's house for a fitting where... Lou walked into a huge argument between Amy and her boyfriend, Alex Clare. When they were alone, Amy admitted to Lou that she had been with Blake, they had smoked crack, and Alex found out. Alex and Amy were fighting while Amy was trying to cook dinner for Alex as they had a guest coming. Um, As Amy undressed to try on clothes, Lou says that he noticed carpet burns on her back from having sex with Blake on the floor, which she was trying to hide from Alex. Mm. Though many think Blake was in love with her. Friends of Amy say that his attitude towards Amy seemed cold and distant in contrast to Alex, who clearly adored her. Drinking, career pressure, love life issues, crack cocaine and heroin did unfortunately alter Amy's appearance and her behavior dramatically. The next year during a show, she walked off stage to throw up after one song. Mm. Another night during this time, went out with her band after a show, she broke a bottle and made like she was going to cut herself. Mm. 
Back to Black was number one in the UK in January 2007. Rehab, the single, was being played constantly on the radio, and Amy was in the papers daily. She won Best British Female Solo Artist at the Brit Awards in February, which she attended with Alex Clare, her parents, manager, and bandmates. So it seems like even at that point, he knew that she was cheating, but they were still together. She was still unknown in the U.S., and her first gig was at Joe's Pub in New York City on January in January 2007. Maurice Bernstein, or Bernstein's company, was hired to build interest in Amy in advance of the U.S. release of her album. Some people were resistant. They felt she was trying to sound black or that it wasn't really her voice on the album. Maurice had to work very hard to fill Joe's Pub for that first show and did find Amy to be a nervous performer. But she did well enough to get invited onto Late Night with David Letterman, Tonight Show with Jay Leno, MTV Unplugged, and other appearances, which she did in spring 2007. In March of that year, she played the Roxy in Los Angeles. Fun fact, Courtney Love attended that show. Hey, I'm still not okay with her. Me neither. Just a fun (laughs) fact. No, I'm just meaning from our, uh, of course, course. other episode. And she had a beef with Dave Grohl and no one has a beef with Dave Grohl. Well, buckle in, because he's he's yet to come in this episode, and he's coming. Oh! Musician and friend of Amy's, Yaslin, or Yeslin Bay, once said, Amy wasn't puffed up. She was almost embarrassed she was doing so well. Like, what am I supposed to do in this space? Monty Lippman, chairman and CEO of Republic Records, said everyone just wanted to spend time with Amy. In their business, there is nothing that can prepare you for that level of success. There's no textbook. You can warn an artist, but until you go through it, it's unlike anything you've ever encountered. Amy once said, if I really thought I was famous, I'd fucking go and top myself or something because it's frightening. Do you know what I mean? It's a scary thing. It's very scary. And then her nightmare started to come true. British slang side note. (laughs) Top myself means kill myself. I assume <laughs> for anyone who was con- who maybe I, was like what I liked that a lot, and what I didn't like was my ha <laughs> I have no idea where that is. It's called jagged energy, and that's where we're at. Please continue. You say jagged, I say spirited. <laughs> I did win a spirit award in band in grade five, so oh, buckle up because you might get another one coming your way on a trophy. I might buy. <laughs> Back to Black entered the Billboard chart in the U.S. at number seven, which was the highest entry at the time for a British female artist ever. Wow. It was also around this time Amy broke up with Alex Clare and became engaged to Blake Fielder Sybil. That was April 2007. When Mm -hmm. she went back to the United States to do further promotion, Blake was by her side during interviews and photo sessions for Rolling Stone and Spin magazines. Amy was on the cover of both. The cover of Rolling Stone had the headline... The Diva and Her Demons. Ugh. This was the, the narrative they wanted to push, too, which is also an interesting part of all of this. Um, the spin photo shoot was with resident creep Terry Richardson at Milk Studios in New York. In home video behind-the-scenes footage, when Amy was asked, what's it like being shot by Terry Richardson, she made a barf face and then says, it's a lifelong dream come true, which I thought was <laughs> amazing. So... During that shoot, Amy has a piece of broken glass that she's using as a prop, and it she was making it look like she was going to cut her stomach with it. Mm. Um, she was asked, what did you think about the broken glass? And she said, I wrote, I love Blake on my tummy. She seems pretty 
intoxicated. I don't know whether it was alcohol or drugs or both mm-hmm. in this fu- in this footage. Um, but she looks at Blake in this moment with so much love in her eyes. Like <sighs> she just adores him. It made my heart hurt. And then she asks Blake to go into the toilet to fuck, which I also respected. <laughs> yeah. Again, spunky. Sp- listen, again, there's there's reasons why I respond to her. Um, like, I, again, I just wish she could stay in the confidence. But anyway, um, I don't know if they did, for the record. I have no confirmation either way on that. Uh, there is, of course, scenes of Terry photographing them kissing. Uh, but by the end of the photo shoot, there's also footage of her just falling down. Again, drunk, high, both, I don't know. Mm. In the interview for Spin with reporter Steve Candle, she was asked, does she think it's hypocritical the way she's written about? She's 23, and it's like people don't expect her to want to go out and party. Now, Blake is seeming to be doing the interview with her and starts speaking for her at this point, saying it's just the British press. Then Steve asks, did you two grow up together? And Blake says, it feels like that, yes. Then Amy adds, we met about two and a half years ago. And then the reporter says, you were fighting to get her back? Blake says, there was a few hurdles in the way. It's taken tenacity and fucking perseverance. There's no way we were never going to be together. Again, I'm like, why is he doing press? He's nobody. He was handing out flyers for Trash Nightclub. Get out of her interview. And of course he was handing out flyers because he is trash. No, I thought that would be funnier than it was. Didn't land continue (laughs) i liked it i think it landed like a plane um a plane that's not crashing anyway (laughs) that didn't land (laughs) shit we're in it together jagged yeah the rolling stones journalist rolling stones the rolling stone what rolling stone magazine wow you are at a level of excitement to get out all this info yes and we're getting caught up uh in our I'm own just, excitement that we, we're getting caught up in the buzz that we're building. That's the, the, ja- the jazz. My tongue is too jazzy. It's jazzing me out. Oh, it's because Amy sang jazz. Jazz tongue feels. <laughs> well, if there's any well, jazz tongue feels like a sex move. But jazz- I was just going to say anybody who's trained in the art of jazz tongue. Uh, uh, send me a line. I'm kidding. Um. The Rolling Stone journalist asked about the scars on Amy's arms, and she said they were made in desperate times. At the time, the journalist notes she seemed embarrassed. And that is interesting to me because she seemed to be so fine with Terry Richardson and the shoot and the broken glass and the cutting. Right. It's just, again, it was such a dichotomy. Uh, But she was a dichotomy, so that's interesting. May 18th, Amy and Blake are married in Miami. Amy did not ask her parents to be there. They went on a boat ride around Miami, and then they went out to eat, and Blake said, and I quote, who's paying for this? I'm broke. And then says, can we get a bottle of Dom Perignon? Dom Perignon side note. (laughs) Hey. Currently, it's around $200 to buy a bottle of Dom in a store, but in a restaurant, it would be much more. For example... At One Oak in Las Vegas, a bottle of Dom is currently priced at $1,100 a bottle. But to be specific to Amy, I did a little math. In May 2007, around the time of their wedding, uh, and also around the time there was this footage of Blake asking her to buy him a bottle of Dom, it was reported that Amy spent 9,000 pounds, or using the May 2007 exchange rates, 
17,820 US dollars or 19,602 Canadian dollars on two days in a hotel in Miami. So I'm assuming this is what they were doing in kind of lieu of a honeymoon. She and Blake locked themselves in the hotel room for 48 hours. They would call for a fresh bottle of champagne every few hours and occasionally for French fries, but the staff said they seemed more interested in the booze than the food. And listen, I want to make it clear. I want her to live her best life. And if that's how she wanted to spend her money, good on her. Yeah. But seeing the footage of him, I obviously am skeptical about whether this was what she wanted versus what he wanted and what she was doing simply to please him. Because it just also feels very convenient to me that they had this on-again, off-again, tumultuous thing, but then he desperately had to marry her once she blew up into being super famous. Mm. Mm-hmm. I do want to say a honeymoon involving living off of champagne and fries. <laughs> Get out of my head. Like, <laughs> Oh, that's a dream. Again, yeah. and, I, and again, if that's what she wanted, no judgment. But yeah. again, I present the facts. Mm-hmm. Present mm-hmm. all the facts. So Amy and Blake travel back to England, and shortly after getting back, Blake attacked a man in a London pub, and it was a serious assault that led to a charge. And I'm not trying to laugh, but the charge is grievous bodily harm. Oh, Alan Partridge. <laughs> Actual bodily harm, grievous bodily harm, harm. Uh, shout out Steve Coogan, genius. Um, anyway, so if convicted... Blake did face prison time. It's it's not a light sentence. Grievous bodily mm. harm is serious. I don't know what he specifically did to this person, and I ran out of time and didn't want to give any more time to Blake. So I didn't get into the crime specifically, but there is more details about uh, the sentencing, which we will get to. Sure. Now, at this time, Amy starts to cancel shows, sometimes very last minute. The drug use is escalating, and Blake's activities are starting to seemingly have a real impact on Amy's kind of fragile sense of her own well-being. Amy and Blake were at her flat. Some say it was August 4th. Others say it was August 6th, 2007. And she suffered what would be the first of a series of drug-induced seizures. Mm. Blake called Juliet, who took Amy to the hospital where her stomach was pumped. Blake says that Amy didn't recognize him and started calling for Juliet. Juliet says when she got there, Amy looked like a child terrified. Blake seemed very shaken up as well. Blake also called Nick Skolansky, saying that Amy had OD'd, and Nick said he would meet them at the hospital. Skolansky says that the doctor said that with the amount of cocaine, heroin, alcohol, and crack in Amy's blood system, they were amazed she wasn't in a coma. She got lucky. She was petite, and her body would not be able to keep up with this. While she was sleeping, Juliet asked Skolansky what they were going to do. And that is when Nick Skolansky said the sideshow amped up. Mm. Her manager, Ray Ray, and her father, Mitch, decided to do an intervention. So the next day, Mitch took Amy to the Four Seasons in Hampshire to recuperate. However, within hours of them being there, the Sun, the Mirror, and News of the World journalists were suddenly staying in every room in the hotel. Every conversation that was happening was getting reported. He doesn't know if they were tapping the phones or just trying to listen through the walls or what. They were also snapping photographs on telephoto lenses, leaking those. Amy was awake at this point and eating, but she was not well. Uh, A doctor came and told Juliet and said, if she has another seizure, she will most likely die. Juliet was then told 
Amy was going to go perform in America. And Juliet said, no, she's not. Lauren, uh, her other friend Lauren said, so we have Mitch in a hotel room with us begging him. You have to do something, she said. And Mitch says, well, what am I going to do? She's got to go on tour. They say, take her passport away. Do something so she can't go on tour. She needs help. Mitch says, can't do that. She's got a tour booked. Juliet literally says she tried to steal Amy's passport but got caught. Because they were so desperate at this point. <sighs> Doctors are coming in and out. They're checking her, you know. Yeah. Shortly after that, Blake somehow gets into her room. And the next time the, next time the doctors check her, there was heroin in her system. <sighs> they got high together as soon as he got there. A doctor told Mitch that Amy had most likely also been using crack. Mitch said he thought it had only been marijuana and that any time someone had told him prior to that that Amy was using crack, he said they were just gossiping. I don't know about you, but if, I'm, I'm not a mother, but if I found out Sweet Peaches had been smoking crack or there was rumors of it, I'd investigate. <laughs> I mean, so would I. Because <laughs> I am fascinated by that. And look, you once told me you would have the drug talk with my kids because and I, I was too chicken shit too. Yeah. Same goes. <laughs> Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. So Amy's mother, brother, Blake's mother and stepfather all came and joined them at the Four Seasons. The families clashed over whether Amy or Blake was to blame for the pair of them using drugs. Mitch and Blake's stepdad, Guile Civil, looked like they were going to get into a fistfight. Juliet says when their girlfriends all found out that Amy was doing heroin, they all went to Amy's room. Amy wasn't saying anything, but her manager, Ray Ray, was in there, and he was saying stuff like, well, there are all sorts of lawyers and doctors and professionals who all function on this stuff. He went on to say that he felt like there was only so much they could do and it was really up to the family. Which, in a sense, that's true, but I don't know how many. We still I don't mean, like it. We still don't like it. So, it turns out that Amy does pull out of concerts in U the U.S. and Canada and also cancels in Norway, the record company uh, citing severe exhaustion, which, great. Now, a drug counselor named Chip Summers says that Russell Brand was trying to get Amy to come to rehab. Mitch apparently was also trying to get involved. The first time that Mitch met Amy was when she came in to get assessed for treatment. She came in with Blake, and Chip says that it was very much being led by Blake. Although, Amy was clearly more willing to go than Blake was. But Chip says she was clearly vulnerable. And Chip felt that this was kind of a situation where one person didn't want the other person to get better out of fear of losing the gravy train. That was his perception. Mm -hmm. He said they were insistent on doing rehab together, but he knew that that would be disastrous and that it would have been unethical to take them into treatment as a couple at the same time, which is very common. I don't I've never heard of of any. I've never heard of that. And I, I mean, I, you know, anyway, but obviously Mitch and the management team found somewhere that was willing to take them as a couple. Of course. Of course they would, because <sighs> that's what they went. That's what they would do. Mm -hmm. So. Amy and Blake were convinced to go to rehab in Essex. August 14th, 2007, they checked in at the Causeway Retreat, Osea Island, Essex. There is home video footage of them there. For some reason, Amy's hairstylist, Alex Foden, was also there with them as well. Not sure why. I don't know if it was... Not sure why, but he was there. 
Al, uh, Blake is filming them and says, anyone got anything to say? She says, can you be nice? Ugh. Blake responds, only if you sing your favorite hit, Rehab. And she does a little. And then Blake asks, where are we right now? Amy says, my island in the sun. Blake says, Alex, can you say where we are? Alex says, a fucking island in the middle of nowhere. Blake says, known to some as rehab. So can we have the new updated version of rehab, Amy? Please, baby, first time for my own personal private movies. And then Amy says, <clears throat> in the smallest voice, I don't really mind it here. And this is why it is unethical to let couples go to rehab together. If she had been alone, again, we'll never know. But if she had been alone, there would have been a chance yeah. that she could have gotten some perspective, at least, on how toxic he was for her. Because what's about to happen gets so dark. <sighs> Two days later, they fled to London. They checked into the fashionable Sanderson Hotel. Amy's brother Alex came to visit while she was there, and they fought about her drug use. In the early hours of the following morning, she and Blake fought while under the influence of drugs. Blake flew into a rage and smashed a bottle and, trigger warning, this is gross, he says, and I quote, took a chunk out of myself. Oh, God. Then Amy picked up the bottle and cut herself. Oh, Blake says, and I quote, I think she just looked at me and out of love or fear or whatever it was or some fucking weird sense of loyalty just did it to herself. How evolved. <clears throat> mm -hmm. The couple stumbled out of the hotel in the middle of the night and were photographed by waiting paparazzi. Blake's eyes were wild, his face covered in what looked like fingernail scratches, not deep scratches, but bloody. Amy's mascara was smeared as though she had been crying. Her left wrist and forearm were bandaged. Her trousers were scuffed, blood showing at the knee, blood soaking through her ballet pumps. This is a very famous photo that a lot of people will post it on um, the Instagram, Chakrama Cocktails on Instagram. It's a very famous paparazzi photo because it was suggested in the press that she had been injecting heroin between her toes because her ballet flats were bloody. Oh. But Blake denies this, saying that blood simply dripped onto her shoes and uh, I don't say I want to believe him, but um, in this case, I, I do tend to because they had both cut themselves and it sounds sure. like a more plausible reason than what the press made up. And it is corroborated when Amy herself texted Perez Hilton and said, and I quote, I was cutting myself after Blake found me in our room about to do drugs with a call girl and rightly said I wasn't good enough for him. I lost it and he saved my life. Amy, he wasn't good enough for you. He wanted oh. to keep you small. It's just, it's, get the blankets. Mm -hmm. It's so heartbreaking to me. It's so heartbreaking to me. It's so heartbreaking to me. There was so many times, so many times. And it, it just gets to the point where it does get, I feel like she does get too far gone because they, anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll talk about it at the end. Anyway, around this time, uh, Ray, her manager, says that Amy told him, 
Love in some ways is killing me, Ray Ray. Again, it's a profound statement. She felt torn between this man she loved and having to keep up with the consumption of substances that was required to be with this man she loved, in a sense. And it was just swinging extremes constantly. And if you listen to the lyrics of Love is a Losing Game, trust me, through this lens, they will destroy you. Mm. They will destroy your heart. So Amy and Blake fly to St. Lucia to lay low following this huge paparazzi incident. Uh, And at that point, a series of concerts and an entire U.S. tour are canceled. Fall 2007, Valerie became her biggest UK hit, recorded with Mark Ronson. It went to number two in the singles chart and was, uh, and then she did make a shaky return to live performance. And obviously trouble began almost immediately. Why is she being pushed back into live performance at this point? I can't answer that question. Three nights into a European tour, Amy and Blake were arrested in Norway for possession of marijuana, which they had been smoking in the hotel room. The couple spent a night in jail before paying a fine, which might seem minor, But this had really big results that make me want to scream because because of this drug charge, Amy was denied a U.S. visa when she was nominated for six Grammys. And she was not allowed to travel to the U.S. because the U.S. would not give her a visa to enter the country. She was also never allowed to tour the U.S. again. And in her lifetime, she never entered the U.S. again. And... I understand that her life was obviously cut very short, but it it chaps my ass. Thank you. <laughs> that, and I'm not saying that it was 100% his fault, but it just chaps my ass that it was like, she was in this thing with him, they got into this dumb situation, and then it had this these huge repercussions. Because to me, you're nominated for six Grammys and you can't even go because of a dumb marijuana charge. I mean, that is... Heartbreaking. And again, anyway, uh, you know, whatever. Feels like for some could be a rock bottom, for others not. Again, just putting it out there. Now, obviously, as we know, drug use can take over lives. And the business of obtaining and consuming can become a daily chore for many people. Blake was the person who would get the drugs for Amy and himself. And he says that he took pride in it. And this is the quote. This is the quote. This is the quote. Mm. That I don't think any, I'm not even going to preface it. I'm just going to say it. As mad as it sounds, it's the only thing I was bringing to the table for a while. Because, I mean, I couldn't match her financially. Mm-hmm. So, so basically, so basically, Amy became dependent on drugs because Blake introduced them to her. Yeah, and Blake was her supplier, and he took pride in the fact that that was what he was bringing to the relationship. He was feeding the the need that came as a result of what he had introduced, and she consequently became all consumed um, mm-hmm. in addiction issues and lost interest in her career. Because of his ego. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's like, I couldn't match her financially. That's it. it like, that is such a, like, refrain that you hear so often, never the other way around, but always a, a straight man complaining about his female partner being more successful. And then it's like, 
It's just like the most dark version of that I've ever heard, and it kills me. Yeah. So at this time, it was touch and go about whether Amy would show up on stage, and Blake was the only person, of course, who could influence her. And he seemed to really enjoy the power, and he would bring his wife off stage if he saw fit. For example, they were trying for a baby around this time. Amy oh, desperately no. wanted to be a mom. It was her <sighs> life dream to be a mom. And October 2007, there was a show in Zurich. She found out they had been trying and that she wasn't pregnant. She was very upset. And Blake just went out on stage and took her off stage. Just took it upon himself. Mm-hmm. Get off the stage. It's not your place. It's her stage, not yours. Get out of her interviews. Get off her stage. Get out of her light. Oh. Oh, I'm going to get so much angrier by the end. Like, just know. I know that I'm already at, like, the end of China now, and we're not even at the second break yet. So just know. Just know. Oh, boy. Okay. So a man named Troy Miller, who took over as Amy's drummer at this time and did work with her until she passed, said... I think there was a certain amount of emotional blackmail going on, and it would upset the show sometimes. Obviously, she was in love and with someone who wasn't very supportive, let's say, of her music and her career as a whole. So that made things difficult. That was part of the reason some of the shows got pulled. I think he said it all. Then Blake gets arrested again. Police broke down the door at Amy's place November 8th, 2007, but they weren't there. Officers then found them at a flat in East London, and Blake was arrested on suspicion of perverting the course of justice. The allegation was that he had conspired with others to bribe the man that he had assaulted to not give evidence against him in court. This is even more serious than a grievous bodily harm charge because this actually carries a potential sentence of life in prison. Oh. Amy was beside herself. And at this point, she has been described as mentally disintegrating. Those are not, that's not my term. That's what somebody else said that was in her life. She came on late to a concert in Birmingham and complained about Blake being held uh, as though the charges were petty. She was blind to the truth. The audience heckled her, booed her, showed little sympathy for for Blake. Amy became indignant. She said, first of all, if you're booing, British terminology, You're a mug. See you next Tuesday for buying a ticket. She said you're a mug cunt. Again, that's a British term, not not in the North American usage. Sure. Uh, It means the same, but, you know, they they they, they, there's different different meaning over there. Um, Second of all, to all them people booing, wait till my husband gets out of incarceration. I mean that. And then the audience just started laughing at her, which is so sad to me because she was so in love with him, whether or not she should have been. All of the other stuff aside, that was her reality. It felt very real for her. And she was standing up on stage, which she shouldn't have been put out there in the first place. Emotional, trying to stand up for this person that she cared about so deeply. And then they laugh at her like that must have just felt awful. In subsequent shows, Amy worked Blake's prison number into the lyrics of songs. Many people just started to come to the shows to see what crazy things she would do next. Amy wearied of it and canceled the rest of the tour. Um, but in typical Amy Winehouse fashion, she paid the whole band for every show on that tour, regardless. Of course. With Blake in prison, Amy got stoned all day, every day, and every night. Hmm. Paparazzi set up camp outside her flat. At this point, you, there's been photos posted of this point, at this point in her life too. Um, her skin was, was really bad. Her eyes were wild. I think she lost a tooth around this time. There was a website and this is so 
fucking gross that was set up in the U.S. that was inviting the public to predict the day she was going to die. Oh. It was around this time she started hanging around with Pete Doherty, uh, who, of course, played in the band Baby Shambles and Libertines. Baby Shambles was big at this time, uh, who's had drug addiction issues notoriously at that time. He was also very famous in the U.K. at that time. She told a friend he was a, quote, arsehole, but they did spend a lot of time together around then. And he, of course, claims they were lovers. During the writing of uh, the book that I read when I was researching um, called 27 by Howard Soonis uh, or Soons, um, Pete Doherty offered the author to sell an account of his sexual liaisons with Amy in exchange for money to get his car fixed. As far as I can tell, I don't believe the author turned him down. Or I don't I don't believe the author took him up on it. Um, but he's not the only one who's been willing to talk about sex with Amy after her death uh, for money uh, but or, or, you know, notoriety. But we'll talk about that later. Over the next few months, Amy angered her husband, Blake, by arranging to come and see him in prison, prison but then failing to show up. She only lived 15 minutes from there, and this obviously upset him. But she also may have been being advised to keep her distance because detectives were investigating her possible involvement in the conspiracy that Blake was charged in connection with. He apparently offered the man 200,000 pounds or $318,000 not to give evidence against him, and detectives wondered where unemployed Blake obviously would have gotten the money. Amy was questioned but not charged, and she flew to the Caribbean for Christmas, having swallowed packages of heroin before boarding her flight. And then was interviewed by cops again when she got back. Now, December 6, 2007, the Grammy nominations are announced. Amy is nominated for six Grammys. George Lopez was announcing uh, the nominees, announces her name and says, can someone wake her up around six and tell her? And behind him in the footage is one Dave Grohl who is shaking his head and then just starts rubbing his face. And it's one of those things where he's like, George Lopez, you're punching down is kind of a vibe where it's like, come on. And uh, that's because Dave Grohl's an angel. So. <laughs> Saint. But it just really, com- like, he's kind of awkwardly, like, uncomfortably smiling. But it's just clear from his body language and the way he's, like, shaking his head and, like, rubbing his face that it was just like, oh, man, come on. Like, it was like, that was the kind of vibe. And I was like, yes, Dave Grohl. Yeah. We love you. We do. Um, we do. Lucian Grange, chairman of Universal Music Group, who Amy called Uncle Lucy, decreed that Amy would not be allowed to perform again unless she'd been to rehab. By then, she was incredibly famous, very wealthy, and had a complete infrastructure around her where everybody was doing everything for her, and to quote him, that's not real love. And he's right. He says, we have the Grammys coming up, and I told her she had to get clean. If you're not clean, you're not doing anything. So he drew up a contract saying she had to go to a facility immediately. He would, she would not be able to record a record, she ever again, she would not be able to perform ever again unless she got clean. And according to Lucien, she did. January 24th, 2008, Mitch drove her to the Capio Nightingale Private Psychiatric Hospital in North London. It's also been called a rehab center. It's also been called a mental health center. Okay. Saying. Uh, Amy did not want to go and on the way there actually threatened to kill herself Aww. to Mitch. When she repeated that she was going to kill herself in the hospital... The staff discussed having her sanctioned under the Mental Health Act. Now being, sorry, sectioned. Now being sectioned in the UK means being admitted to hospital whether or not you agree to it. It's like a 5150 in the US. 
sure. only being sectioned has an emergency period of 72 hours, which is the same as a 5150. But then a section two lasts up to 28 days, section three, six months, after which point it can be renewed for another six months and then renewed annually, whereas a 5150 is the 72 hours, then a 5250 is 14 days, then you can be recertified for another 14-day hold called a 5260. But at that point, if you're still considered dangerous to others, the court may put a six-month post-certification hold on you. That hold is renewable, but if you're considered gravely disabled, there are several possible outcomes. You may be placed on a 30-day hold for additional intensive treatment if used in your personal county, or you may be placed under temporary, say it with me now, conservatorship, and then a full one-year conservatorship, which is renewable. Mm. I want to remind you, I didn't know any of this in the Britney episode, but think about how much time there was there. They didn't need to put, like, just getting back to Britney for a quick second, it's like, it's, we already know how egregious it is, but it's wild that the court allowed it. It's wild. Because there was so many other things that could have been put into place that we're learning now. And I know that they were trying to control her money. I get that because they were, quote, trying to protect her. But it's just wild to me that there was 5250s, 5260s, six-month post-certification holds. Like, there was so many things they could have done. Right. Anyway, in the end, Amy was sedated. And over the next few days, she was treated both there and at the London Clinic on Harley Street, which did become her preferred rehab to go to in a crisis. This, of course, was all leading up to the Grammys, which were February 10th, 2008. Now, some documentaries I've seen make it sound like she'd had a stretch of sobriety at this time. But she had been threatening to kill herself and had to be sedated over just over two weeks prior. So if she was sober at the Grammys, it had not been for very long at this point. The night of the Grammys, Amy is up for six awards. She'd already won two at Showtime, which was 5 p.m. L.A. time, which is 2 a.m. London time. Because the U.S. government obviously wouldn't approve her visa to travel, as I talked about, it was arranged for Amy to perform via satellite from London. Natalie Cole and Tony Bennett come out to, an- to announce her category, the final category record of the year. Amy's eyes pop out of her head. And she's like, Dad, Dad, it's Tony Bennett. Like, she's blown away. The nominees for the album were Irreplaceable, Beyonce. The Pretender, Foo Fighters. Umbrella, Rihanna, featuring Jay-Z. What Goes Around Comes Around, Justin Timberlake. At which point Amy goes, his album's called What Goes Around Comes Around, which is amazing, to the point that she almost misses hearing her win announced, which I think is hilarious that she's shading JT. Again, we love you, Amy. And finally, Amy Winehouse, back to black. Tony Bennett says her name, and she is shocked. She hugs her band, and her dad is already on stage. Hasn't been invited. It's her stage to all the men in her life. Get off her stage. It's hers. Then eventually her mom comes up too. She also looks so much like her mom, by the way. I'll post a photo. It's uncanny. Like spitting image looks like her. Um, She says the award is for, quote, her Blake, who is incarcerated, and for London. All in, she ended up winning five of the six Grammys she was nominated for, the most any British woman had ever won at that time. Wow. Ray said it made all the work seem worthwhile. Tyler James, her childhood friend, said Amy is completely clean and looking amazing. Again, okay, but if she was, it hadn't been for long. Juliet was there, hysterically crying, so happy for her. Amy saw her crying, pulls her on stage, and takes her backstage. Juliet's gushing, I'm so proud of you. She's looking for any reaction from Amy, and Amy says, quote, Jules, this is so boring without drugs. 
And Juliet says that's when she felt really, really sad for her. <sighs> Three days later, her friend Yeslin Bay says Amy came over really late and said she didn't know how to do that thing she'd been pushed to become from her success. So she pulls out drugs and he says, Amy, I love you. I don't mind that you get high, but I mind that you get high. And he says she did what she did, got high, and he thought this is someone who is trying to disappear. So again, even if she stopped cold turkey January 24th when she was taken to the Nightingale, Capio Nightingale, by February 13th, according to his account, she was using again. She was once asked, do you like being famous? She says, I don't think there's any such thing, to be honest. I don't know. It doesn't mean bollocks. And then the follow-up question, is it hard to know who you can trust? To which she takes a pause and then in a small voice says, yeah. Ugh. March 2008, Amy moves out of the flat, which she still owned until her death, and into a townhouse. She decided to start outpatient rehab. Doctors were consulted, including a doctor named Dr. Christina Romette, who treated her until the time of her death. She was a private general practitioner, family doctor. Um, what are they called here? I can't remember. Primary care physician. A drug replacement program was prescribed and private nurses were engaged to care for Amy while she got clean. But she had to stop user using heroin and stay off of it for 12 hours before the program could start. At the same time, she was trying to write and record the James Bond Quantum of Solace theme song with Mark Ronson at the Doghouse Studios. Although she said she wanted to detox, she was still using crack and heroin and was often incapable of work during this time. Mitch visited her April 11th, 2008 at the Doghouse Studios. He found her strung out, emaciated, and physically filthy. She was clashing with Mark Ronson, so she brought Salam Remy there and they recorded Between the Cheats, which is a song about her undying love for Blake. During this time, she did also have an affair with a young man named Alex Haynes, who was working for her manager. The News of the World published an account of the affair in which Haynes was quoted as saying, Amy reached for her crack pipe as soon as she woke up. She lived on junk food that she would eat and then purge. She cut herself and attacked people when drunk. Returning to Camden, she went on a bender with friends, hit a man who wouldn't give her her way on a pool table, and then slapped another man in the street, which, was a result, which as a result of which had her arrested. A police doctor said she was unfit to be questioned, so she spent a night in jail, and she accept, accepted a caution for common assault. UK terminology side note. A caution is not a criminal conviction, but it could be used as an evidence of bad character if you go to court for another crime. Kind of a warning, basically. Sure. But it goes on, it's, you know, there's an, it's on your record. Um or there's evidence of it, I guess. The following month, she was charged with possession of crack, but the case didn't go to court. So I guess that caution uh, also didn't matter at that time. Between the police incidents, she returned to the, to the Doghouse Studios in a desperate attempt to record the Bond theme. While at the studio, she spoke to Blake on the phone and admitted to the, the affair she'd had with Alex Haynes, which upset her, and triggered her into a complete breakdown. Her father says he had never seen her so bad. She had cuts all over her arms and her face. She, trigger warning, she had put out a cigarette on her own face, oh. on her cheek. She had a bad cut on her hand where she punched a mirror. Mitch restrained her while nurses bandaged her and tried to calm her. He later told a journalist that she was so disturbed, sorry, that he was so disturbed that he tried to have her sectioned, but by the time the doctors had been summoned, she'd calmed down. So they didn't bother and here's where I say, she put a cigarette out on her own face. It is time. 
This is the time. It was the time years ago, but now's the time. I will have some level of forgiveness if you do it now. Sure. Now. Yeah. Do it now. Nope. Nope. The Bond theme is abandoned. Amy goes home. She has another seizure and, of course, had to go back to the London Clinic. At this time, she's diagnosed with emphysema. I believe this is also connected to the the amount of crack that was being smoked because she was she was a heavy cigarette smoker, but it was a lot of crack from what oh. I've read. She was allowed out June 27th, 2008 for a concert in honor of Nelson Mandela's 90th, singing in front of him and 42,000 people in Hyde Park. She altered the lyrics of a song to, from Free Nelson Mandela to Free Blakey, My Fella, which feels like an odd choice when Nelson Mandela was there, but anyway... Mm. The next day, she performed at Glastonbury, the penultimate act on a Saturday night. She was escorted to the gig by nurses and a team of her minders, who now accompanied her, accompanied her everywhere. Um, and people say she had a nervous energy. No shit! She sang a full set, told the crowd that Blake was getting out in two weeks, which was just an optimistic view of his upcoming trial. Uh, she was drinking at this concert, which again, she should not have been performing at either of these events. No. This woman was in a, had a breakdown. She was in such crisis. And this is like, this is the thing again that's so wild to me because this is around the time, like 2008. Oh, I get to it in my next bit. I'm getting ahead of myself. So June 2008, outside of her home in Camden, the paparazzi is nuts. There is a man named Andrew Morris who gets called to do security for her because her security team is simply overwrought, cannot handle the paparazzi. Oh, boy. Um, Andrew Morris spent a lot of time with her until her death, and he was the person who actually discovered her when she had passed. Andrew says he felt she was a very humble person that had just gotten caught up in a bad situation. He also said she became my entire family. It was just us, just us, only people she can talk to. Anything your daughter would probably want to say to you, why don't your period come? Why can't I get pregnant? Anything at all. If I knew she wanted to go down to the pub and I knew she had something to do tomorrow, she was not going down to that pub. I'd say you can thank me tomorrow. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's not right. If it's not right, I'm going to tell you it's not right. She needed someone to say no to her. She needed support. So there was a period of time when this man was with her that it does feel like, again, he genuinely cared. But again, too little too late, in my opinion. Play, uh, Blake pled guilty to the grievous bodily harm charge July 2008, was sentenced to 27 months. Amy descends into debauchery. At this point, Uncle Lucy has already made it clear that she that meant she couldn't perform. Mitch, who's basically on the management team now, I guess, who makes it clear in his book that he had really come to, to clashing blows with Uncle Lucy on this issue uh, in a heated conversation, uh, he wanted to make that clear that he was really against this whole thing. You wanted her to be... The rule is just that she, she needs help. That's the rule, yeah. Dad. Dad. Ah! <gasps> It was the summer festival season, though, and Ray Ray had bookings lined up for her. Again, I just, I can't. And, and Mitch claims that it's like, oh, they're concerned, but like, you know, she she sometimes looked shady and reluctant to perform, but, you know, and it's like, it's just, like, I feel again like I'm being gaslit. Like, this is the point yeah. in the research where I just started to lose it, because I'm like, this is wild. How could anybody involve, and also, like, I'm going to say it, where the fuck is Janice? Ugh. What you doing, Janice? Where's Janice? Anyway, <laughs> I can't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Her condition worsened. 
Amy hated being alone. She would reach out to friends in any way she could. She was a frequent early user of Skype. She would call girlfriends, people she went to school with, people she had worked with years before, just anybody to chat to. People said she sounded desperate and even paranoid on the calls. She said she was scared of the paparazzi outside her house. She also talked about thinking there was ghosts in her house. Not in a good place. Mitch announces September 6th, we're not going to be doing any more work for the foreseeable future. I think, oh, he's announcing they're taking a break. Thank God. Nope. Amy's going to be concentrating on writing her new album. Oh, and there's actually five gigs we're contractually obligated to do. That's his announcement. Uh She does one in 2008, The Isle of Wight. Her eyes are dead. Dead. She's singing with a a drink in her hand. She was getting a million dollars a show at that time. So I guess maybe there was a vested interest from other people for her to be pushed out on stage. Um. But people knew that it was going to be a bad show. And so people would come to like see how bad it was going to be. And things were just getting worse and worse. Her life was in a fishbowl. She was completely unraveling. The media treatment made it worse. And then in November 2008, she came out of her house in a rage and just attacked the paparazzi. Just like swinging fists. She was like, who's first? Who wants some? And may I add, does this remind you of anyone? Brittany with the umbrella. Yeah. This was around the same time. It was 2007 when Britney had that meltdown. And this was 2008. And what I think we're learning here is when you treat young women in this way long enough and pressure them to perform long enough and put the media pressure long enough and have them having their pictures taken anytime they do anything long enough, they will eventually snap. I think we have two great examples that guess what? They're going to snap. Yes. Everybody has a breaking point. Everybody. Yeah. This also coincided with a development in the Blake saga. Great. He gets released briefly to go to, from prison to go to a rehabilitation center in November. And then there's a fight. What's the fight? He expected Amy to pay his rehab bill. And he was also saying he wanted to divorce her. Oh, my God. So she gets pushed over the edge. She checks into the London clinic. And although she did have some relapses, she did stop using heroin and crack cocaine at this point for good. As as far as anyone can tell, again, end of 2008, that did stop. But she just substituted alcohol in its place. Excess, excess, excess alcohol. Two weeks before Christmas, she goes to St. Lucia with friends. Uh, Andrew Morris says St. Lucia was her place. She loved it there. They were supposed to be there a week. They stayed six months. Wow. During that time, she met a man, uh, a young man, at a at the resort house with whom she was photographed. Blake says, I'm in jail with 500 fellas reading the paper, and there's a picture of my wife on the beach with a fella. It's not easy to go through things like that. You got her hooked on drugs, you scumbag. That wasn't easy for her to go through. How about that? Mm-hmm. But who was the mystery man she was photographed with? Hollywood himbo side note. That's right, this man was actually referred to as a, quote, himbo in print by GQ magazine. And his name is Joshua Bowman, a former British rugby rugby player who went on to star on ABC's Revenge opposite Emily Van Camp, who he started dating shortly after Amy's death and has been married to since 2018. Wow. He met Amy while on vacation in St. Lucia. He was on vacation with a rugby pal named Danny Cipriani. While he was there, he met Amy, and the two had an instant connection. He added that the relationship he was developing with Amy wasn't to launch his career either. 
He said, It's true to say that I'm a budding young actor, but I'd rather get my name out there because of my acting rather than who I'm being photographed with. I wasn't waiting until there was photographers on the beach to put my arm around Amy. No one was suggesting that, Joshua. And also, if you really weren't trying to use this opportunity to get ahead, you didn't need to do press about it at the time. Don't take the interview. Yeah. 2011, three years after St. Lucia with Amy, Josh films a movie opposite Miley Cyrus called So Undercover. There was rumors they may have been having a relationship together. Why? Well, they were caught snuggling and kissing during a picnic date at Griffith Park in Los Angeles in February 2011. And I know what you're thinking. Wasn't she with Liam Hemsworth then? Well, I checked. Cosmopolitan put out a detailed timeline of their relationship. Thank God. Miley, thank God. Miley and Liam broke up in November 2010, calling it a timeout. Got back together in April 2011, but were taking it slow. So technically, they were on a break. When asked in 2012, Joshua said about Miley, It wasn't a relationship. We're mates and did a movie together. She's a very nice girl. There's nothing else that can be said. In the same interview, when asked, You were close with Amy Winehouse. Some people said you dated. He responded, I'm not really ready to talk about that. Mm. So Blake files for divorce over those photos. Now, they were kind of like frolicking in the water, touching each other. Sure, I'm not saying it, it looks great, but okay. Amy starts to drink more than ever. She is still in St. Lucia, and there are tabloids publishing photos of her crawling around the resort on her hands and knees. She was apparently begging guests for drinks after the bar staff would refuse to serve her. Blake films a TV show called Amy Winehouse, The Untold Story, later, and says, to put it bluntly, I just didn't have a very high opinion of myself after the treatment I'd had for the past two years with my wife. I just kind of had the wind knocked out of my sails. I just thought, fuck this. I'm a big man. I'm a handsome fucking guy. I ain't on heroin. I'm going to the gym a lot. I dress well. So what the fuck am I doing wasting my time with her? Uh, it, it's I, more the other way around, asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Understatement of the century. Mm. <sighs> yeah. I just can't. I just huh? can't. You used her to get famous and now you're shit talking her. You got her hooked on drugs, and now you're shit-talking her. Yep. Um, She moved into a private villa on the beach when she showed no signs of returning to England. Uh, Management sent recording equipment. They flew out Salam Remy in a band. Uh, There was hopes that she would record songs, but little was done. She was intoxicated most of the time and just not accomplishing much. June 2009, Mitch is filming a TV show called My Daughter Amy. Because he can't stop either. Because the men in her life failed her repeatedly. He says that he hadn't seen Amy for six weeks, so he flies down with some paperwork for her to sign, which feels so odd to me. But anyway, um, he brings an entire camera crew. She is on vacation. She is trying to get away from it all, and he brings a camera crew. I mean, at this point, some people who were around them at that time said that, like, she loved him or she wanted to love him, but, like, he just made it so difficult, essentially, because it was like she worshipped the ground he walked on. But then it's like he's coming down there with camera guys and audio guys, and she would say, like, if you want money, I'll give you money. Like, what are you doing? You don't need to do this. You know? Yeah. There's also a scene in, in the Amy documentary at that time where he, like, bullies her into taking pictures with some fans. 
And they have, and, and the other thing Amy says to him, which struck me because she said it to Blake that time too, was she just said, please be nice to me on camera. <sighs> yep. So Mitch seemed to like the attention that came with being associated with Amy. Mm. So he recorded it as his own album called Rush of Love. And he started conducting interviews with celebrities in the back of a cab for his online chat show. He was even repped by the same management company as Amy. Uh. Mitch said, and I quote, people say I'm only doing this because I'm Amy's dad. It's true. Who else would give me a shot at 59? I'm not nervous of the actual singing, but that moment when you're backstage and you look out and you only see three people sitting in the crowd, that I find a bit daunting. Mitch has also complained about when he would do shows and Amy would jump on stage to sing with him, saying, and I quote, oh, no. it was a nightmare. It was a funny nightmare. She'd come in on my spot and we'd end up arguing. Meanwhile, she's up there being super supportive, being like, everybody, Mitchell Winehouse. But yeah, how dare she? How dare she? How dare she give you that platform and then be there to support you? Mm. There's a British word that we don't use over here, but they use over there that I am getting to the point <laughs> I'd like to use. Yeah. I was just surprised that uh, given her upbringing, um, that Amy knew how to be supportive because she certainly never saw it in her own life. Except for, well, the, except for her friends. Well said. So there's that. Well said. So she comes back to England July 2009. Mitch rented her a house in the suburbs, which he thought would be better than going back into Camden. Uh, she was in tears walking through the arrivals gate at Gatwick Airport because in coming home, she had to face her divorce from Blake. He was granted the divorce July 16th, 2009, and it became final six weeks later on August 28th. Blake says that when Amy asked Mitch how much money Blake was getting in the divorce, he said not a penny. Blake says he was never interested in Amy's money, but then went on to refer to Mitch as the fat controller, like from Thomas the Tank Engine. So yeah. I don't know. After the divorce, Amy had a breast augmentation and talked about getting rhinoplasty. She told Mitch, and this, she couldn't stand seeing herself in the mirror. I <sighs> She was charged with common assault and disorderly behavior after attending a Christmas pantomime in December. She got drunk, attacked the theater manager when they wouldn't serve her another drink at intermission. She pulled his hair and called him a fucking C-word. Um, this resulted in a court case in January 2010. She was fined and given a two-year conditional discharge. The judge noted she already had two cautions for similar offenses, but a letter from her doctor said she was trying to curb her drinking, so that was something he took into account. I mean, look, I mean, to be honest, I am still silently raging, uh, one might even say seething, um, <laughs> over Trash Blake saying that he couldn't match her income. And I know that was a while ago, but I'm still deeply there. Uh, so I need a minute <laughs> yep. Yep. to unpack yep. this. Uh, so we're going to take one more quick break. Hit the can, stretch it out, and we will be right back with more on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to True Crime and Cocktails. We are, of course, talking about Amy Winehouse. And I know that we are all feeling the anxiety (laughs) because we all know where this story is heading. Yeah. So to that, I say, back to you, Lauren. Thanks, Christy. I'm going to try and bring it home as quickly as I can. (laughs) So Amy moved back to central London. One day she was walking around, saw a man sitting outside of a pub. They made eye contact. This was Reg Travis. She followed him into that pub, which his parents happened to own. They both sat at the bar, started chatting. He was 33, just over six years older than her. They both had like a 1950s aesthetic. He often dressed in suits and ties. He just kind of uh, most of the time dressed that way. He was a director. He'd made two films at that point and had another set to come out in 2011. He did not do drugs. He seemed like a good candidate for Amy. So he thought she was so beautiful and fun, clever with a domestic side who loved nothing more than spending nights at home, making them snacks, and intimating she wanted to start a family. He says he didn't find her depressive, but he did think that she had like self-esteem kind of issues. Um, Amy told friends he treated her like a lady. But another woman had a different experience with Reg. Oh, boy. Reg Travis scandal side note. In 2012, Reg Travis pled not guilty to two counts of rape. He denied allegations that he sexually assaulted a woman on New Year's Eve 2011. The alleged victim told Southwark, Southwark, oh, I'm sorry to the UK, I'm sorry to all of you. Southwark? Mm, yeah, it's not getting better. Suffolk? No, it's like Southwark. Oh, boy, then, yeah. wow, they, well, guess what, now they hate me more than you. Southwark. Ah! Southwark? Mm. Oh, again, like I'm getting that. I'm getting offensive. I feel like I'm getting offensive. I'm not meant to. I'm not meaning to. I'm being genuine. Well, I think it um, sounds lovely. Thank you. Crown Court. It's been very difficult for me not to like break into a million British things. Although I've done a couple. Anyway, actual bodily harm. Anyway, um, grievous bodily harm. Crown Court that she was drinking on a night out and she remembers uh, Reg getting forceful with her at his flat in the early hours on the 31st of December. So he told the court that it was consensual after getting merrily drunk together at three bars. He said that the woman seduced him by inviting him to bed at his flat, which seems okay, fine. Um, He told the court there was no truth in her allegation whatsoever. He did tell the jury how he had not been out for several months whatsoever after his girlfriend, Amy Winehouse, had died in July of that year. To which I'm also like, don't use her to get out of a rape charge, please. Don't tell me you're doing that. No. Nope. Please. If you didn't do it, you didn't do it. But please don't. Please don't. Um, 
Again, he said the woman had instigated the sex. He said that the next day he repaid her 25 pounds that she had spent on drinks. He walked her halfway to the tube, kissed her goodbye, agreed to see her that night. Um, When asked by the defense if he thought that they could have had a relationship, he said, I sort of came away from that evening thinking this could be really good, that it could have been the start of something. I wasn't looking for a girlfriend, but she is somebody I have known for a long time, and I thought there could be something in this. So I was like, that's interesting. Uh, But he didn't hear from her for weeks, so he just assumed um, that they were going back to being friends. She went to meet a man in New York. He assumed that that was it. Uh, So he was shocked when police contacted him about this in April. Um, He was not initially told who made the complaint, and so he thought it could have been a stalker who had made it up or something. He was acquitted by a jury after less than three hours of deliberation. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there you go. So even though Amy and Blake were divorced and Blake was living with a girlfriend, Amy and Blake were in contact and were photographed kissing in Camden in March 2010, shortly after which Amy tweeted, I love my husband Blake and it ain't wrong, marry for life. The next month, they were photographed walking hand in hand on a night out. Reg refused to be jealous of Blake, accepting him as a part of Amy's past. Eventually, Amy changed her number because Blake started calling all the time. Mm -hmm. Then he started writing Amy's letters, sometimes asking her for money. She sent him small amounts in return. Mm. Reg believes that she never saw Blake again after he and Amy became a couple. He feels Amy had grown out of that relationship and was feeling more maternal towards him, feeling sympathy for him because he did as well. Uh, Blake was envious of Reg, suggesting that Amy had traded him for someone better. Yeah, because she did. Amy turned 27 on September uh, in September 2010. She continued to perform live into early 2011. There was financial pressure as she hadn't put out new music, uh, but she also didn't want to be performing the old material anymore. The stuff about drugs didn't feel right because she wasn't doing drugs anymore. And some shows she was lucid. Some shows she was super inebriated. So she bought a house in Camden Square in 2010, had it refurbished extensively. She moves in February 2011 and loves it. She loves her house. One of the rules during that time was that if Andrew Morris, who, of course, is the security guard she was close with, who would implement all the rules, or any of her other minders saw her somewhere that was known to sell drugs, they would tell the record company and they would impose a huge fine on her. This was one of the rules. She unfortunately did have another seizure in front of her doctor in January 2011. She was then admitted into the London clinic, but did go back to drinking as soon as she got home. Her touring company was reporting assets of just 8,000 pounds or $12,270 that spring. Two of her other companies reported losses. There was 2 million pounds in her main company, which is, I think, around $4 million. But that was diminishing fast. And there was a growing pressure on her to make her third album and return to touring on a business-like basis. And I know $4 million is a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. But she would have made so much more money than that at that point. Right. It's so much that that, again, it's just she was she was going through it. So she asked Reg to move in because but he refused because and I quote, as a bloke, I wouldn't have been comfortable living in such a grand place and not being able to say there's half of it. So I always felt I should keep my own flat until a time come that either we got married or I had enough money to put something towards it. Otherwise, it would have just always felt wrong. And I'd just like to say, welcome to my life. (laughs) And also, enough. Enough with your egos. Get over it. I can't. 
It was about something else. I just, and anyway, oh, yeah. no, whatever, whatever. I just always feel like it's like, that's an easy, easy way out. But whatever, right. maybe it was honest for him. Who cares? This isn't about me. Um, but we're having, we're having a laugh. February 2011, Blake is back on heroin and started stealing to support his habit. I wonder why he's no longer married to someone with money. Yeah. He and another man were stopped that month by a cop who found stolen goods from a burglary in a house and an imitation firearm. He was charged, remanded in custody. If convicted, he faced another long prison sentence. He was about to turn 29. He was about to be a dad. And Amy responded to this news by going, unfortunately, on a binge drinking and self-harm binge. Of course. So her brother's fiance at the time was so alarmed that she, of course, brought up again. Amy should get sectioned under the Mental Health Act. But Mitch didn't think it was viable or necessary. March 2011, Amy took part in her last significant recording session with Tony Bennett for Duets 2 at Abbey Road Studios. His son had the idea for the Duets album, but Tony personally chose Amy. He said she was the one with the voice. She was very anxious that she was singing with one of her biggest idols and that it was all being filmed. She sounds fucking incredible, but she stops partway through singing and starts apologizing that she's like terrible and that she doesn't want to waste her time. She starts to walk away. He's like, no, 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 we'll do it until we get it right. She says she just wants to get it right so badly. And he's like, you sound wonderful. You're getting it right. Tony then goes on to say that the most famous artists he's met are the most nervous before they hit the stage and that she is she's the same. He said she had the gift. She was a natural, true jazz singer. And a jazz singer doesn't like 50,000 people in front of them. He says, uh, I'm like you. It's always different. She says, yeah, never the same thing twice. But I'm like you. I get it from you. And that was her, I learned it from you, moment, which was really charming and beautiful. Salam says she Skyped him after this and she was so happy. And she had all these ideas about a jazz project she wanted to do with Questlove. She was such a jazz snob. Questlove says she was constantly sending him stuff. Questlove says that he thought he basically had a doctorate in jazz, but that she taught him more than he even he knew. Um, she says she wanted to start a super group. She was like, you, me, Mos Def, and Raphael Sadiq. And he was like, okay. And then she'd start assigning homework, being like, a study these records. Let's do this. Again, stay in that place. Stay in that place, Amy. Stay in that power. I wish, I wish, I wish. After that, she started to alternate between binges and complete abstinence um, from alcohol. Her doctor prescribed diazepam for her stage fright. Um, her doctor also started to su- suspect bulimia, And when she confronted Amy, Amy first denied it, but then did eventually admit it. The effects of so many years of the substances, the alcohol, the bulimia were significant. And Amy could feel totally fine, but have serious heart irregularities. And the doctor told her that her heart could stop if she started drinking again. Regardless, May 2011, Amy went on an all-night bender that put her in a coma. When she came to... She discharged herself against medical advice and went to the pub. <sighs> this is when Dr. Romet, the same doctor, sent her a letter saying she would no longer treat Amy. She copied Mitch and Ray Ray saying Amy was in immediate danger of death. They basically persuaded her to keep treating Amy, but she said things have to change. She said Amy needs treatment for the alcohol and she needs treatment for her psychological challenges. 
She said she thought that DBT or dialectical behavioral therapy was appropriate. This is often recommended to people with personality disorders, especially BPD or borderline personality disorder, which we have talked about many times on this show, especially in the Little Mermaid episode. But for a refresher, I will give you some of the signs. Unstable relationships, fear of abandonment, self-image issues, impulsive behavior, self-harm, suicidal behavior, feelings of emptiness, rage, paranoia. Anyone who exhibits five of those over a period of time can be diagnosed with BPD, and Amy has literally all of them. I think that at this point, I personally believe it was not bipolar. I think that it was definitely ADHD, and I think BPD is also a real, real probability here. Mm. Um which again, when it goes, when these things go untreated for a lifetime, again, heartbreaking. May 25th, 2011, uh, her family and a doctor gathered to have an intervention to convince her to go to the Priori Clinic for therapy. She got angry and abusive. The argument went on for hours. Finally, she agreed. She went to the Priori Clinic, but discharged herself six days later. <sighs> then June 18th, 2011, the infamous Belgrade Serbia show. She did not want to play this show. The night before, she told Mitch she didn't want to do it. When it was time to go, she was passed out asleep on her sofa. They put her in a car asleep. She woke up at the airport where she got put on a private jet and flown to Belgrade. Mm, whether it was against her will, kind of a gray area. <sighs> Andrew Morris said she just had to do it. She didn't want to do it and that he thinks the drinking was an escape route. Some people who were present backstage at this show say she was physically pushed out on stage, but her management denies this. Of course they do. She comes, I know, she comes out on stage. I should also add, this crowd is huge, like tens and tens of, uh, hundreds of thousands of people, it looks like. The crowd is going nuts. She hugs a bandmate, sits on a speaker, falls off the speaker, stumbles as she gets up, sits down again, and then she just wouldn't sing. And it, she was so disoriented. Her, some of the musicians in her band have talked about, like, she she would ask, like, what are we doing? Like, what's the song? Like, she just, she was just completely out of it. <sighs> and she just wouldn't sing. The crowd turns. This show ostensibly ended her career. Now, I know that she she does pass shortly after this, but she has no memory of it. So she looks up YouTube videos of it and is shocked at her own behavior because she has no memory of it. God, okay. After seeing it, she tells her dad she's sick of drinking. She becomes introspective. She talks about her grandma, Cynthia. And then she asks, oh, here, am I, is this going to break me? I got this far. She asks her dad for reassurance that she was talented and attractive. Ugh. She was several f sober for several days after Belgrade, but then started drinking again, possibly triggered by the news that Blake had been given 32 months in prison. He would serve his time in HMP Leeds in a methadone program to get him off heroin. So not even hard prison time, but okay. Blake spoke to Amy regularly on the phone at this time, and some feel he still had a hold over her. Again, Reg, her boyfriend at the time, says otherwise, but I don't know. I just have to comment... And I'm going to do it again at the end, but the parallels between her and Brittany blow my mind because they were completely different women in so many ways, but in so many ways they're so similar because they were being forced to perform. But the only difference is, is that Brittany's family did too much and Amy's family didn't do enough. Yeah. 
And it's literally like either of them could have been the other person if they were in the other experience to me. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just wild. Anyway, um, at this time, Amy seems to know she messed up. She talks about like, oh, yeah, I messed up. But she's like, but the good news is I can go to Nikki's wedding because the tour got canceled, which is Nick Skamansky's wedding who was coming up. Juliet talks about how three weeks later she called Jules and for the first time since she was a kid used her real voice. Interesting. Again, this is all Juliet's account, but she does say that she was like, it's the first time I'd heard her talk normally since we were kids. She had been pining for that person for so long. Um, she said she'd call her the next day. Um, she was sober at this time. She said she felt like a cloud was lifting for her. She was planning a Caribbean trip for her upcoming 28th birthday in September. Um, according to Reg, there was an apparently an understanding that they would get married. He said there was no ring or proposal, but Amy said, well, let's get married. And I said, yeah, I would. He says that happened in 20, that it would have happened in 2012. And he's re been referred to as her fiance in documentaries, which I resent because I'm like, you wouldn't even move in with her. And now you're claiming to be your fiance when you didn't even propose, no. like take a nap. Um, and now we're going to get to the final day. Mitch had a singing gig performing his nightclub act in New York on July 23rd. So before he left, he stopped by Amy's house on Thursday, July 24th. She was in an introspective mood looking at family photographs. Janice stopped by at lunchtime on Friday the 22nd. Amy said, I love you, mummy, as Janice left. Janice said she seemed weary that day, but was, that wasn't unusual as Amy kept rock and roll hours and was taking diazepam for anxiety and Librium for alcohol withdrawal. And she was drinking on top of that. Dr. Romette had refused to prescribe any more drugs when she found out Amy was still drinking. Autopsies, the autopsy revealed traces of Librium and high levels of alcohol, which we'll talk about in a minute. Dr. Christina Romette saw Amy the night of July 22nd. Amy had started drinking again after being sober for two weeks. When she asked Amy why, Amy said she was bored. Amy had always resisted psychologists and psychiatrists for fear of, quote, letting those people get into her brain and then losing what allowed her to create her work. I think this was a different time. We talked about this in the Britney episode. Mental health awareness was not in a popular conversation. It was still, you know, there was a lot of stigma around mental health. The conversations yeah. weren't happening then like they do now. And I will also say that I remember um, 2013, 2014, there was some people that I'm no longer close to, but there were some people uh, that I had met from England and I was talking openly about therapy and they were horrified. So I don't know. And, and the UK listeners, you can tell me whether that's true or not. But I it was I don't know whether it was just these people or if maybe that was like a cultural thing. But some cultures, you know, have an aversion or certainly during different times in history um, that has not been as typical as it is now. I think it's sure. much more accepted now that for people to go to therapy, to ask for help, all of those things. Again, I think we can, there's still, you know, work to be done, but I think it's great that we've come as long, uh, as far as we have. Um, because, my God, I wish she could have gotten into some therapy. Reg and Amy had been dating for roughly 16 months at this point, but obviously had not moved in together as... I mentioned I wrote because he has a delicate, fragile ego, as I mentioned earlier. <laughs> I had to put it in yeah. my notes. Um, but so 
Reg calls her from his office a little before 8 p.m. Friday evening to say he'd come over later and bring takeout. He said she seemed like she'd had a drink, tipsy but not roaring drunk. Amy decided she wasn't going to wait for him, to which I say, good for her. So she and Andrew Morris called for the same Indian takeout they'd had the night before. When it was delivered, they took it to each of their rooms alone. Just after 10 p.m., she found some footage of a man she used to date on YouTube, ran downstairs to Andrew's room to tell him to come and watch. They spent the next few hours together in her room watching YouTube videos. At 11.30, Reg called Amy to say... He was ready to come over, but she didn't answer her phone. This wasn't abnormal. But then he got super indecisive about going. He said something in him was saying, get over there, just go. But he just couldn't do it. So he like wasted time in his office, went and got a drink at a pub, started to take a cab there, then had it turn and go to his house, then had it turn and go back to her house, but then had it turn back and go to his house. For reasons he can't explain, he also didn't think to call the landline or Andrew Morris's cell phone, but says, I really wish I had. Okay. Mm -hmm. Amy and Andrew Morris watched YouTube videos until 2.30 a.m., so she either missed Reg's calls and texts or chose to ignore them. We don't know. Andrew Morris said she was showing him clips on her laptop of her singing and said, boy, I can sing. And he said, damn right you can sing. And then she said, and this is Shades of China. If I could give it back just to walk down that street with no hassle, I would. (sighs) Oh. In her last few hours, she looked at pictures of herself online, which was something she did not normally do, but she had been doing since Belgrade. It really shook her. Um, Andrew later said that this was the only thing that was unusual about Amy and her behavior at the end. He said Amy was pretty normal for Amy. Nothing was ever quite normal with her. So... Andrew went downstairs and watched a movie until sometime between 3 and 4 a.m. He says he could still hear her moving around upstairs when he fell asleep. At 3.30 a.m., she texted her friend Christian Marr, quote, I'm going to be here always, but are you okay? Interestingly, she did not reply to Reg's texts. So she would have seen them, but did not reply. Mm. So she had drank steadily all day every day since Wednesday the 20th. She threw up in her toilet at some point. We don't know if that was... Alcohol-related, bulimia-related. But then she laid face down in her bed, duvet thrown back as it was a very warm night. She was still dressed, her laptop open, with three empty bottles of vodka nearby. Oh. Yeah. Andrew Morris went in to check on her at 10 a.m. the next morning, called her name, knocked, opened the door, saw her asleep. She often slept in late, didn't think anything of it. Reg got up at his flat, went and got a haircut, picked up a suit from the tailor. They were supposed to go to Nick Skolansky's wedding that weekend. By mid-afternoon, Andrew Morris had not heard anything from Amy's room, which seems strange, so he went back. Her body was in the same position. So he went in, looked for a pulse, couldn't find one, thought of drugs, looked around, didn't see any, saw the vodka bottles, called an ambulance, said he thought his boss had a heart attack. At this point, her friend Tyler James, who would stay with her on and off, was coming to the gate. Andrew let him into the house but said, don't go upstairs. The paramedics arrived, also found no pulse, and also noted that rigor mortis had set in which meant she would have had to have been dead for several hours at this point. She was declared dead just after 4 p.m. Andrew then called Reg, Amy's doctor, and Mitch. The ambulance service notified the police. Now, drinkers appear tipsy with concentrations of 30 to 50 milligrams of alcohol per deciliter of blood. The driving limit in the UK is 80 milligrams per deciliter. Drinkers become uncoordinated at 50 to 150, slurred, confused, unsteady on their feet at 150 to 250, Difficulty staying awake at 250 to 400. Amy's blood alcohol level was 416. Wow. 
And there was actually higher readings in her urine and in her vitreous humor. What's that, you ask? It's the jelly-like substance in the eyeballs. Oh! That's a surprise I wasn't expecting. Moving on so that we don't have to think about that horror show. A pathologist explained at her inquest that this was a toxic level of alcohol associated with death. Basically, it was enough to depress her central nervous system and bring about respiratory arrest, which is what he said probably happened. The coroner ruled misadventure, saying she died as a result of alcohol toxicity. Amy essentially drank herself to death. Now, there were two inquests into her death. That was the evidence of the second inquest held in January 2013. The verdict was the same as the first, but the first inquest was October 26, 2011, and it was a circus. The press was a nightmare, the proceedings were badly organized, and the coroner, Suzanne Greenaway, resigned a month later when it was revealed she was underqualified for the job. Oh, my God. All of this aside, the evidence of both inquests was the same, consistent and clear. Again, just chaos. Um, By the time Reg got to the house, it was sealed off by the police. He did see her sadly, in the morgue. The paparazzi were in just as full force as her body in a body bag was being carried out of her house. As a society, we have failed. There should be no market for those photographs and those videos. I think it is disgusting. Anytime we see videos and photos of anyone, celebrity, in a body bag, enough. Enough. Too much. Rabbi Frank Hellner, who has done countless funerals, including celebrities, uh, was disconcerted by the amount of press at Amy's funeral. He felt it took away from the decorum of the event. Mitch spoke of Amy's fantastic recovery. And then he gave the impression that she had been conquering alcoholism. Oh, boy. She drank herself to death. Yeah. He said she wasn't depressed at the time of her death. How do you know, Mitch? You weren't there. You were out on your sad parade of pathetic singing. And then he announced that an idea came to him right after Amy died for the Amy Winehouse Foundation. This is a quote. Something to help the things she loved. Children, horses, but also help those struggling with substance abuse. What modge-podge of a charity is that? Oh, boy. Yeah. Some of Amy's friends took exception to Mitch's comments and the tone of the funeral. Lauren Franklin said... It it was the Mitch Winehouse show. It was a media frenzy. It was so distasteful. Oh. Blake did not attend the funeral. In death, Amy joined the infamous 27 Club. Famous rock stars who all died at age 27. The other five on the list include Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, who drowned in his pool. Jimi Hendrix, who choked in a hotel. Janis Joplin, who was a heroin overdose. Jim Morrison, who died in the bath. And Kurt Cobain, who we all know, was murdered. (laughs) Thank you. Some commentators have cited an astrological concept known as the Saturn return as a malign influence. Others say it's a coincidence. Ultimately, I think it's a media term that's a little bit vulgar, um, but is what it is. The author, again, of the book 27, Howard Soons, or Soons, Uh, Did a lot of research, and I found this fascinating. He found 3,463 people who died between 1908 and 2012 that had achieved notoriety in public music. There was a small spike at the age of 27 in deaths, but there was also a spike at age 80. (laughs) (laughs) His, His point was, is it could mean something or it could mean nothing. 
which I thought was fair. Something I did think was interesting, however, was that Jimi Hendrix, Kurt, and Amy were all exactly age nine when their parents split up. That, to me, could be something. Sales of Amy's music skyrocketed after her death. She went to number one on the UK charts as well as in 15 other countries. Mitch said he originally had the idea for the Amy Winehouse Foundation on his flight home from New York, but later he told a story about Amy's voice miraculously coming into his head while he was in New York. He told the BBC in 2013, I got the news and almost immediately, so he's saying, I got the news about her death. And almost immediately her voice came into my head and said, Foundation, kids, dad, foundation, foundation. I can't with this guy. I just can't. He registered the foundation's name three weeks after her funeral. The Charity Commission recommends people consider giving money to established charities instead of starting their own as it dilutes the charity sector sector, and may uh, duplicate important work that's already being done. Mitch says setting up the foundation saved his life. He appeared on Anderson Cooper and Piers Morgan's shows in September 2011 to discuss the foundation, speculating that Amy didn't die due to drugs or alcohol, but that she died because she stopped drinking abruptly. And the seizures she was known to have could have been what caused her death. He basically said she died because she stopped drinking. He was reportedly paid $50,000 or £31,446 to appear on Anderson Cooper's show, the money, of course, going to the foundation. Between interviews, he found time to sing in a concert and sell a book about Amy. A deal with HarperCollins was announced October 10th, 2011, with the proceeds going to the foundation. Another company he and Janice opened was Bird and Butterfly Limited, which became Amy Winehouse Foundation Limited Training, Trading Limited. Uh, Mitch did all of this, I will add, before the inquest into Amy's death had even been held. Before the first one. Mm. More important to get on talk shows and... Yeah. Her record company rushed Lioness, Hidden Treasures, out in time for Christmas that year. It was certainly not a CD Amy would have wanted to release. Only one original song appeared on there, uh, and the recording was dated 2008, which speaks to the fact that she just was not not recording music. Um, There were a few more arguably better songs in the can that her family vetoed, saying she didn't want them to be heard. The album was marketed... With the spin that one pound or a dollar fifty nine from the sale of each CD, say it with me now, would go to the foundation. Aww. The album went to number one in the UK. Mitch and Janice appeared with Tony Bennett at the Grammys in February 2012 to accept an award for the duet duet Amy did with Tony. Now Amy died without a spouse or children, so her estate was divided between her parents. Uh, net of taxes, it was two point nine million pounds or four point six million dollars. Mitch nor his reps replied to requests asking how much of that money would go to the foundation. Uh, Mitch's book was written so fast uh, because it wanted to be he wanted to be published before the one year anniversary of her death. Uh, This is not a term that I would use, but to quote others, her ashes were passed around for a while and then uh, to family and friends. And then two days after what would have been her 29th birthday, the family honored her wishes and interned interred her ashes with her grandmother, Cynthia's. A black memorial was erected to mark the spot with sugar pink lettering. There is a Bible quote in Hebrew, a Star of David, a Winehouse Foundation logo, Uh. and a list of Cynthia and Amy's friends and family. Mitch ensured he was the first listed. Of course. Now, there have been many documentaries made about Amy's life, including the 2015 documentary Amy, which won an Oscar for Best Documentary. Mitch says he had a nervous breakdown because of that film. Janice said she doesn't feel Amy did her justice. 
Janice says what hurt the most was the idea that Amy had an unhappy childhood. So this year, Mitch and Janice released a documentary of their own called Reclaiming His- Reclaiming <laughs> Reclaiming History was what I went to say, <laughs> which is what they do, Reclaiming Amy. The documentary also featured some of her friends that I had never heard about before, two of which were Naomi Perry and Katriana Gourlay, who are currently on a press tour as they have a book about Amy coming out next month. It should also be noted that Tyler James has written a book about Amy, as has her mother Janice, and as has her bro- her friend Blake Wood, on top of Mitch, which we already knew about. Hmm. Huh. In Reclaiming Amy, Catriona talks about how she had dated women at this time and claims that she and Amy had a sexual relationship. Now, when this news came out, all of the press started referring to her as Amy Winehouse's ex-lover. She said that she didn't think Amy wanted to talk about it because she was confused about, quote, what it made her. And to that I say, I don't think that it is appropriate to out anybody, whether they are alive or dead, if Amy was not at that place with her sexuality I do not think that it is this person's place, and I think that that's inappropriate. Yes. Plain and simple. I don't think it's appropriate for anyone to talk about sexual experiences with any partner, alive or dead, publicly. I think it's crass, and there's no need for it. But I really do think in this case, shame on this person claiming to be her friend. You're putting out a book. You're trying to cash in on her name. Or or let me put this put it this way. I don't know what your intentions are. You will be cashing in on her name. Plain and simple. And you've been doing that now by claiming that you're her ex-lover, who also happens to be a woman. And uh, again, I'm I'm not for that. I think that's wrong. Wait a second. Are you serious? Side note? (laughs) On the 10th anniversary of Amy's death during an appearance on ITV's Lorraine, Janice admitted she has never met Blake. This was this year. 2021, the 10th anniversary of the death. She's never met Blake. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. She said that Amy told her at the time that they were going to have another wedding. So she was like, okay. And obviously a lot of people, of course, have animosity about Blake and the drugs. And Janice says she'll never speak ill of him. She also wrote an essay for OK Magazine. Okay. Uh, in which she says, when it comes to Blake, I've decided never to speak badly about anyone. I know it was about love, and I don't think you can judge when it comes to love. Love does the walking and talking. I believe the relationship between Amy and Blake was intimate and genuine. Their marriage was impulsive, but it was still pure. It was obviously a complicated relationship, but love was at the heart of it. How can you say that if you never set eyes on the man in person? Am I wrong here? Nope. I also have to say, in that documentary... Her and her second husband, Richard, they have an Amy room that has all this, like, memorabilia. Not weird. What I found weird is the big picture framed in the center of the room is a court sketch of Amy. Like, Amy had to go and testify on trial for something. You know how they do, like, court sketches? They have it framed on the wall. I'm like, is that a moment you need to remember? Like, have her Grammy up there or something. Don't have her... When she had to be in court. It's just so weird. And then immediately they're, like, looking at her old shoes and... Richard's like, oh, look at these Louboutins. Oh, the, the, the sticker's still on. 500 pounds. Wow. And I'm like, you're already getting into money. Like, w- give me a break. Just give me a break. Mitch, in that documentary also, he accidentally calls his Alexa Amy and then is like, slip. Then has Alexa start playing an Amy Winehouse song and then just starts loudly singing along. Like, we, we get that you can sing. We get that she got it from you. We get that you had an album and a tour. Stop. 
Just stop. Take a nap. A long one. Please. Please. He says that for eight years after she died, he couldn't listen to her music. Okay. They sold the house that she died in but kept the first flat that she owned. All right. Um, he also shows a picture of himself saying, here I am with my two pals. And it's a picture of him with Tony Bennett and Harry Belafonte. It's so cringeworthy. And it's like you only met them because of Amy. And why are you doing this in a documentary that's supposed to be setting the story straight about how the media and these documentaries misportrayed her when you're making it about yourself? It's so gross to me. It's so gross to me. Um, anyway, uh, I'm sorry. I'm just, no, no. we're almost done. We're almost, we're, we're about to flame out. We're almost done. Yeah. Um, the other thing he says is that he, he says it annoys him when people say she wasted her life. And then he says five Grammys. That's not a wasted life. And what I want to say is, is that my belief is, is that if I died, especially if I died young, you, for example, would not be listing my career credits first when talking about what my life meant to you. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the fact that her father, <gasps> the, the, the number one thing he goes to is the awards. And here we go, dear listeners, buckle in, because Ash is about to go out on a rant. Oh, boy. Janice claims people were looking for someone to blame following Amy's death. She said, Amy chose her own path. We have suffered from the trolls and the damaging speculation, accusations that Mitch just wants to make money off of his daughter, that we killed her, that we could have done more, and it's completely wrong. Addiction is a mental illness, and that is the true villain in this story. I've studied addiction, and I understand that now. One, Mitch admitted to it full out that he was taking advantage of being her father Two, um yes yes absolutely uh, addiction is no joke um but you absolutely could have done more and i do not care that's not a speculation i'm saying yeah. that as a fact um ugh. janice has said there was something that we missed something that you missed she put a cigarette out on her face and you did nothing you could have had her sectioned you didn't Hmm. Many blame Dake for her, Blake for her death because he got her into drugs. Others blame her management forcing her to perform live. What happened in Belgrade, her getting booed so horrifically, for someone who is so delicate, nervous, all of this would have been horrific for her psyche and her confidence. The pressure she was being put under doesn't exactly go well with the traits of dealing with addiction issues, the self-loathing, the self-sabotage, the cycles. Even though she was with Reg the last two years of her life, she was in contact with Blake until the end of her life. And even though he was with someone else and had a child, many believe she was still in love with him. And I want to speak very briefly as someone who has been in many toxic relationships and say, it makes me very sad that Amy felt that he was what she deserved and that she didn't get to live long enough to learn the truth that she not only deserved better, but also she didn't deserve to fear being alone. And that might sound like a funny concept to you, but I know that there's people that are listening that know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's what breaks my heart. Because when you get there, you get there. And it's a beautiful thing. And she'll never know that, which makes my heart hurt. <sighs> Blake's partner has said that he was devastated by Amy's death and that she knew she'd never live up, live up to Amy, that she'd always be second place because Blake and Amy were soulmates. I would also like to say, as a woman who's been in toxic relationships, that it also makes me sad that this woman feels that that's what she deserves as well. Yeah. <laughs> and I hope that she lives long enough to have her own awakening. Amy lived her whole life in North London, 
Her various homes from childhood until her death were all within a few stops of each other on the London Underground. She once said, I love singing, but I was put on this earth to be a wife and a mother. Again, a similarity to Britney that is just so staggering. These were young girls with incredible talent, exploited by all around them for as much as they could wring out of them when they just wanted to be simple, have simple lives, and be moms. Here's a quote from Mitch. We did everything within our power to help Amy, but you can't force treatment on somebody, and I felt it was Amy's responsibility to get herself well. But I'm not actually going to leave you with a quote from that man who truly failed his child because I think it's disgusting. So instead, I'm going to leave you with the words of Amy's idol, Tony Bennett, because it makes me sad that she never got to see these because I know what they would have meant to her. And he said, and I'm going to go, just know it. Amy was one of the truest jazz singers I've ever heard. To me, she should be treated like Ella Fitzgerald, like Billie Holiday. She had the complete gift. If she had lived, I would have said, slow down. You're too important. Life teaches you really how to live it if you can live long enough. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails through tears once again. Get the blankets for Lauren Ash. <laughs> well, shit. Here we go. So, I love that here we go, yin and yang, the beautiful emotional tribute, and me going, we're running quick on time. I took a lot of notes. They're frantic. They don't make sense. Please. I tried to go through this and decide what was worth saying, what isn't. I'm saying some of it that's not worth saying. Again, I want it. I want it. This is what we're doing. Literally, the first note I wrote down within like a minute of starting this, uh, Mitch is an asshole. (laughs) Yep. Uh, There was a moment, I believe, before the first break, could be wrong, uh, when Sharky jumped up and just rested his head against your shoulder. And God, that was really beautiful to watch. To watch. He knows. He always he knows. knows. He knows. Uh, Mark Ronson. Hey, the Uptown Funk guy. Yeah. Uh, Mitch having to call his mother Cynthia to tell her about Amy's record contract because he wanted the praise for himself as if he'd earned it. Mm, like, I just can't even begin to tell you how angry that makes me. Yep. Uh, to whoever created the website predicting Amy's death. You're a piece of shit. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for mentioning Dave Grohl. Of course. Shout out, Dave Grohl. (laughs) Uh, For those who have never been, St. Lucia is gorgeous. I was fortunate to go once. There we go. Uh, The fact that you mentioned both Courtney Love and Steve Coogan in the same episode without meaning to was synergy. They dated, and we mentioned it on the Kurt Cobain episode for those that's who right. are uh, that's right. catching up. Uh, oh, I'm probably going to say that last. Uh, the excessive drinking and substance abuse combined with sudden overwhelming fame is just a recipe for disaster, especially without a proper support system. So fuck Janice, fuck Mitch, and especially fuck Blake. Y'all saw it? You didn't do a damn thing. 
this is on your heads. And yeah, bitches, I'm angry now too. <laughs> so this is where we're at. Uh, Mitch, you should have been more concerned about Amy, your daughter, and less concerned about Amy, the bank account. Yes. And now Janice won't speak ill of Blake, but I will. Uh, is Blake st- is Blake still alive? Oh yeah. Okay, perfect. Uh, I shouldn't say this, but Blake, there is a special place in hell for you, and I am almost giddy thinking about you getting there. Uh, that was just a quick summary of my notes. Oh, and also, I get why this case was like, why you were drawn to it. Amy was considered witty, hilarious, spunky, and had a deep, deep closeness with her grandmother. Let me know. It was seen. I see I see it. I see it. Uh, again, for the sake of time, Lauren Ash, thank you for your research. Thank you for taking us on this heartbreaking journey. Yep. I now know why Amy is one of our OG blanket girls. And thank you, dear listeners, for taking this journey with us. As always, we appreciate your support. And as always, make sure to give us a follow on the socials. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails or on Twitter at Not Detectives. And if you feel that three hours a week isn't enough with these two chuckleheads, you can check out our bonus content at patreon.com slash truecrimeandcocktails. There are episode polls, bonus episodes, three-hour-long live Q&As. So if you want more, Patreon is the place for you. And speaking of things for you, if you are looking to snag any True Crime and Cocktails merch... Head to TrueCrewMerch.com, the only place to get official True Crime and Cocktails gear. Everywhere else is just a pirate. (laughs) New merch is arriving soon, so make sure you check it out, because Lauren really puts her heart and soul into that store, and honestly, it shows. Thank you. Lauren, would you like to tell the people about our next episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails, TV's... Original Superman, George Reeves. That's right. OG Superman, George Reeves. I cannot wait. I love the old school cases, so I can't wait to start researching that. Lauren, would you like to say goodnight to the people? Goodnight to all the blanket gals. Goodnight, future time traveling us. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.